This is Jocko Podcast number 168 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Beowulf spoke. Wise sir, do not grieve. It is always better to avenge dear ones than to indulge in mourning. For every one of us, living in this world means waiting for our end. Let whoever can win glory before death. When a warrior is gone, that will be his best and only bulwark. So arise, my lord, and let us immediately set forth on the trail of this troll dam. I guarantee you, she will not get away. Not to dens underground, nor upland groves, nor the ocean floor. She'll have nowhere to flee to. Endure your troubles today. Bear up and be the man I expect you to be. And there is some more Beowulf to start this podcast. And it's an interesting note that Beowulf, the poem, started not as a written poem, but a poem passed on as a story from generation to generation of the pagan Anglo-Saxon warrior people. It was part of their oral history and their oral tradition. And that's basically what we're doing here, capturing stories from our modern day warrior people, which we are continuing with today during part two of my brother Jason Gardner. Part one was the last podcast, number 167. So if you haven't listened to that one, just stop listening to this one right now, go back and listen to 167, and then when you get done with that, you can come back and hear the rest of it. And if you have listened to 60, 167, well, then here we go. We're gonna start kinda where we left off. What's up, Jason? Not much, happy to be here. <laughs> Check, so we left off yesterday. You had basically, You'd stayed at Team Three. You're gonna do an ops tour, an ops task unit ops tour. But then you made senior chief, mm-hmm. and then that's where we left off. So you get done with that, and where'd you go? SEAL Team Seven. But went over to the Senior Enlisted Academy and knocked that out because okay. that is basically a prerequisite for making E9. But it's difficult to get away from NSW for How that long. How long is that course? That one was six weeks. Yeah. There's two of them. There's another one that's three months, and it's just. Trying to cram that in is difficult. So it made sense to go then, and then they they popped me over for a, a, a troop senior enlisted advisor over at SEAL Team 7. And so for people that don't know what that means, you're going into a task unit. Your task, was you, did you guys have a two platoon task unit, or was it we three? We did, it was two. Check, and that means, explain your position of senior enlisted advisor in a SEAL task unit. So there are two SEAL platoons, which are the two maneuver elements. And then over the top of the SEAL platoons, there's myself, I was a senior chief at the time. And then there was a, a, a lieutenant commander at the time who was the, the task unit commander. It was the same position that yeah. you had in uh, TU Bruce. Yep. And then you were the senior enlisted guy in there. And I, I was actually looking at one of my old briefs, leadership briefs from the teams. And I don't know if you remember this, because I haven't, I don't do it when I do it for civilians now. 
but I used to do the roles and responsibilities of everyone inside the, mm-hmm. the task unit and be like, okay, this is what the task unit commanders should be doing. This is what the senior enlisted guy should be doing. And a key word there is, and this is what a platoon chief should be doing, and this is what a platoon commander should be doing. One of the key words there is should be, because there's a lot of leeway depending on personalities and what skill sets people have. And sometimes people are capable of doing a part of someone else's job, but they're maybe not so great at doing something they should be doing. So you got to figure that out inside of a platoon. Now, I used to say that when you take a platoon, if you take a platoon, you've got to get to like, you could pick a number, like you've got to get to a level 10 with the top four leadership, meaning the LPO, the assistant platoon commander, the platoon commander, and the platoon chief. Those, they have to have a number equal to 10. Like you can't have a bunch of guys that are ones because that's only a four. Mm -hmm. But if you have a a chief that's an eight, well then cool. It's like doesn't really matter that the platoon commander's not that great or the platoon commander's a one or whatever. Um, and, And that's fine. Sometimes you're gonna get some guys that are really good at something. Sometimes there's people that aren't. And as long as you have some good leadership in there, you'll be all right. And that's what I realized when I was running trade at. You just basically need, you need one leader, one person that knows how to lead things and everything will be fine. You, but you actually should have two people that know how to lead things. So that way if something happens to the number one guy and then they can kind of communicate and they can talk to each other and they can bounce stuff off and they'll just be like, like infinitely better. Um, but yeah, it's uh it's always a little bit different in every task unit. And well, that was great because that roles and responsibilities brief that you gave, like at the time, <clears throat> the the TU task unit leadership going through the unit level training was was new. Mm-hmm. And and it was kind of a new position all the way together. So it wasn't really well defined. I was really like, where the hell is my role here? Um, so that that was really helpful. And I think what you and your troop SEA did is you kind of define, because you guys participated in training, mm-hmm. and not all the troops, troop commanders and troop SEAs were going out to every ULT block. Yeah, yeah, for and, sure. And, no, we and then did now everything. you guys did everything, yep. and then after that. That was the standard. Everybody set that standard, and it's a good standard to have. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I was lucky because my first deployment to Iraq, I had a task unit commander, and and a task unit SEA, and we both are friends with both those guys. Mm-hmm. And they really, like, I was watching what they were doing, going, okay, that seems to work pretty well. You know, just looking at how they interacted with me, and they set a good example, and I kind of just took that when I came back, and and that's the position I put myself into, was kind of mimicking what those two guys had done. And they that were really well balanced, you know, not micro, and they're just, just good, just really good leaders, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I just, okay, that was cool, that worked. And so that's what I did. And then luckily I got to go through workup and then go to Ramadi. So I kind of knew how it, you know, I, 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 I carved that out and there, there it was. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote the roles and responsibilities. Cause believe me, when I was, when I first took over trade at, there would be all kinds of ways, sway things going on with guys not having any idea what they should and should not be doing. Cause uh-huh. they were, everyone was just going, what should I do? Like you said, it was a new position, a yeah. relatively new position. I mean, we had task unit commanders back in the day, but it was, they would be completely detached and then they'd show up. Hey, I'm an O three or mm-hmm. I'm an O four. I'm in charge of you. And everyone would be like, okay, that sounds cool. Whatever. Who's this guy? Yeah. And you <laughs> wouldn't see him till deployment. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then now, now the new thing was you're like there from day one, which was really cool. How we we evolved that way. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's it's as it should be. So you get there and form up your platoons and start going through training. Yeah, we start doing workup, and so 
you know, uh, the task unit commander, he had a lot of experience. The, the both the all the platoon leadership had a lot of experience too. So it was it was. I would say it was stacked. We had great all the way down to like some of our E5s had deployments to Iraq. They had good experience. So it, it looked like, you know, hey, this is, everything's gonna be easy. Um, and then we started started ULT, uh, went out to the, the land warfare block, which has really always been where I have a soft spot in my heart because it's, it's hard, it's dirty, um, and it's mean. But, uh, you know, we trained out there in the desert. We were, we'd gone through the first two weeks of the land warfare block, which is doing our immediate action drills, a lot of our range work, our demo, all that stuff. And then we were coming into the phase the last week, which is the field final training exercises. And so we're, we're in this big classroom and we're getting the brief on, you know, uh, a feedback on, on the brief that we'd just given for our first operation. And after that, the your your land warfare senior enlisted advisor mm -hmm. came in. And he's like, "Hey, everybody, listen up! Every task unit that's come through here before you guys has had a blue on blue during this training. So you need to be really aware of your blue horse picture." And and so I well, I'm like, I'm rolling my eyes. And, and, and my internal dialogue is, I'm like, oh my gosh, what a bunch of clowns. Are you kidding me? Everybody shot each other? That is never going to happen to us. You know, I'm like, heck, I used to run land warfare training when I was at, at a training cell at a team, and this just isn't that hard. There's no way we're gonna shoot each other. Okay, like, let's just go four hours later. It is just mass pandemonium <laughs> we we went in we hit a target things kind of were going really smooth and then all of a sudden everything fell apart we were t we had like i i think we had seven down guys that we were tracking <laughs> and then but that we couldn't even get clear word because everybody was talking on the radio at the same time we were trying to break off the target there was no organization there were guys all over the high ground around us. I, I remember real specifically one of the fire teams pointing up to a mountain that was just to our left saying, hey, do we have friendlies up there? And someone else saying, no, we don't have anybody, you know, and looking in a battle map, no, we don't have anybody up there. And then that fire team wiped out what was our sniper element. So we had a whole fire team just wipe out uh, you know, our four-man sniper element trying to come down high ground with a down man of their own. And then so we, we made it to the extract, uh, dragging all our bodies out of order, everybody talking, get back to the camp, realize we're missing a piece of sensitive equipment. Um, and then in the debrief, we discover that we'd had this heinous blue on blue and, you know, a fire team had pretty much wiped out another fire team. And it, and we're just like, oh man. So we pushed guys back out to the field to find a gear that we'd lost. And thank goodness they found it before we had to stop training to, to, to find that gear. Um, and then, you know, we, we did, by no fault of my own, we did a really healthy assessment of what you guys as the training attachment had put us through. And instead of going, whoa, you know, blaming you guys or making excuses or like, okay, 
let's make a list. And we knocked out like four things that we messed up, the worst four things that we messed up, and then how we were going to fix them. Like, okay, well, this down man thing, we don't have it right. We'd better start carrying stretchers in the field. Um, And then we're going to stick – each fire team is going to have a parabag, so when a guy gets killed, we're taking all the sensitive stuff off of him so we can move him easy. We put him in the parabag so we don't lose it. Okay, that's done. All right. Um, Guys, we get – Everyone's got to stop talking on the radio at the same time. We got to get some comms disciplines. We ran some drills. Uh, we ran drills on how we were going to get head counts. Um, and, you know, then we, then we did the drills on um, how are we going to identify each other in the dark as soon as they're bullets without, you know, with no comms. And, uh, and so we laid that out. And, and like, hey, everybody, here's where, you know, we carry the, the VS-17 panel. Mm-hmm. It's like everyone's going to have that in your left shoulder pocket, the little three-foot ones mm-hmm. down. So that's during daytime. At nighttime, we're going to use our strobes. And, uh, we, you know, they're at the time, and even today, I'll tell you what, if I was going out today and I was worried about the enemy having night vision, I would be more worried about, and this is me personally, and I don't want to argue this with anybody, and, and you can hit me up, about my own guys shooting me because they can shoot yeah. and they have big guns than the enemy seeing my strobe. Yeah. So that, that was something that panned out later. So we did that. I thought we did it in a real healthy way. We, we kind of, we were really cutting corners with our rehearsals because we don't get graded on our rehearsals. We get graded on our brief. So all the effort goes into the brief but the brief doesn't stick with you mentally until you go out and rehearse it. And so we're like, hey, here's the way we're going to do our, uh, you know, our head counts. And, and, and we, we would do head counts by fire team. Someone would say head count, and then fire team six is up, five's up, four's up, three's up, two's up, one's up. Like, okay, we go out and rehearse it. And we get to fire team three and the guy would be spacing it. And we're like, hey, fire team three. And okay. And we get to the point where that was just second nature. And then to the point where everybody, because we got decentralized command going on now, when we're moving off target, fire team six knows a head count is coming Mm -hmm. and they just kick it off and it just rolls through and there's, there's no issues. So we got that done. We did our next FTX. We did considerably better. Mm But you guys ramped up the pressure, mm-hmm. and then we had other issues. And we're like, okay, hey, when we get all mixed up, we got to be able to reorganize without sounding like a high school cafeteria. So then I think the next thing we punched into was our reorg perimeters in the dark, and we would go out and just mix everybody up mm-hmm. and go, boom. Someone would pass us the hand signal for a perimeter, and then we would go get it and get reorged. And... Uh, and hit it up like that. And, and, and what I really enjoyed about the training, and I told people who came through it later, was that it was, was, like, it was super challenging, and it was like, a, it was like going to a haunted house. And, and like, I enjoy going to haunted houses because I like to go through and something startles me, and I'm not really happy that something like a guy popping out with a chainsaw or whatever startles me. And so I'll go through it, then I'll assess how I reacted, and I'll go, next time, 
Let's do something new. But it's completely new and unexpected. And you guys continued to turn that dial up of completely new and unexpected. And that panned out to work out so well for us because we had a, the right attitude about it. And, and later on when I moved in that position, we can talk about that later, I, I, I could see a healthy way to deal with that and the not healthy way to deal with it. And the healthy way is always owning it and taking responsibility. Yeah. And then it just, it was so much fun. I'd just be, we'd be done, we'd be covered in sweat, everybody was yelling, and uh, um, it was a great experience. And then we just, we took that, and then the other blocks of training, and, and, and the, the most intense for leadership is definitely land warfare, and then SAUC, which is our urban training. And we just got hammered there too. And then it's paintball and uh, a bunch of other stuff. But uh, that was great. One other thing, like when you did your roles and responsibilities, you didn't really define a position for the, the troop senior enlisted advisor. Because in that, you're so like, hey, you're not really gonna be the, the assault lead or anything else like that. Because honestly, like you, the, you've said, yeah, the thing Thor I used could to run an assault. Yeah, the thing I used to say is, is the senior enlisted advisor is the action arm for the task unit commander. So there's going to be things that are going to be need to make be made happen, and that's the guy that's going to make it happen. So oh, we got a building that's got a problem, or we got a position that needs support, or we got a wounded guy. Like in the army. And the Marine Corps, their SOP is who runs a Kazavak. It's the senior enlisted guy because that's the guy that goes, oh, he he has the experience to make this happen under a massively stressful situation. So my word to the senior enlisted guys was like, you're the action arm. This the task unit commander can't make things happen. He he's got to he's got to look at what else is going on. He's got to figure out what the next step is going to be. He's talking, getting information. He's passing information. All that stuff is going. He can't take time to go clear an extra building or set up a security perimeter on this ridge top. Like, you can't do that. That's the senior enlisted guy that goes, hey, boss. And, and obviously, he's saying, hey, boss, if if you want to get out of here, here's what I'm going to make happen. I'm going to go set a perimeter over here. I'm going to put gunners up on that high ground. And then you guys can peel through here, and that's where we'll leave. And the TU commander goes, awesome, yes, execute. So that's that, to me, has always been the, the best way to utilize the senior enlisted. Because if you put the senior enlisted actually in charge of something, well, guess what they're doing? They're doing that thing. And then when something else goes sideways, who's who's gonna handle that now? And it always seems to happen in a seam. Yeah, so it's, it's gonna like be the most complicated thing too, right? The thing that's hard to handle is the thing that you didn't plan for. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have, it's just like, it's just like you don't wanna commit your reserves, right? You mm -hmm. don't wanna commit your reserves in, in a situation where you don't have to. Well, you don't wanna, you, you're, as a TU commander, you have, one guy as like the reserve, you have reserve brain power and your reserve brain power is your, is your SEA because if something goes wrong, you can't get on it, but you need the most experienced, tactically savvy guy to go and handle whatever it is, which you may not even know how to handle, but you just know that you've got, you know, enemy approaching on a road from the north. You're getting intel. You're, you're getting fed information. Hey, there's enemy approaching on the no road from the north. Hey, senior, get it taken care of. And then senior goes, I got it. And goes and handles it, and and that's basically how we executed. And what was what's really interesting is that over comms and guys would the thing comms would be up, and a lot of times comms go down. But over comms, the word would be like, "Hey, we're leaving. Break down your security." And then you're waiting for a call, and waiting for a call, and waiting for a call, and then you know, I'd have to run over there and say it 
looking at someone actually say it and then they're like oh mm-hmm. and and for some reason they're 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 hearing it in their headset and uh um it it just it ain't happening and you just gotta go guys get they get jammed up you know and that hourglass is just turning and turning and turning and you gotta go <laughs> you know hit them to get things moving get that processor moving and going again and then sometimes just your presence there and what you know talking about yelling you're not yelling at them but like hey boom get the 60 gunner down let's go yep. we're moving this way Hey, get that wounded man over there. The stretch, ditch the stretcher. We're done. Go, and then hustling everybody up, and just trying to keep everything moving around. And I'll say this now: everything that we faced in combat was easier than the stuff we faced in training because you'd put the screws on us so hard that we were like, "Oh, okay." We've seen something pretty dang close to this before. So when when a guy stepped on a on an IED and lost his legs, that we didn't experience in training. But everybody dealt with it in a professional way. And of course that was a horrible situation, but that was not something that we were new to. We were like, oh, okay. We've done a down men. We've we've had this situation. You know, we had a, a couple of guys get pretty severely wounded. Um, and it was, it was a factor in their pain, but it was no factor in how we fought and, and how we dealt with the situation. Uh, there were, there were a couple times that we came ludicrously close to blue on blues, but because we had, we had, you'd reinforced everything in training because we'd mitigated those blue on blues bloodlessly in training. We didn't have them on the battlefield. Yeah. Well, it was. I mean, for me coming into that role, coming home, I was, I was, I was, I was pretty emotionally connected to the fact that I wanted you guys to be ready and just, you know, like the whole down, down man thing, like it's not easy to carry a down man, especially not easy when the guy helps you and he kind of, it's in training and he kind of jumps up on your shoulder and puts yeah. his hand in that right spot on your back to stabilize himself and all those little things that they do to help each other out. It's like, it's not that easy. It sucks. And the blue on blue thing. And I, I remember I'd a, a task unit, your task unit included would have a blue on blue and I'd bring them into the office and everyone in the chain of command would sign like a safety violation. Yep. And and I would tell everyone, I'd say, listen, I'm not doing this degrading you because the person in this room that's had a real blue on blue where people got killed is me. And I, the one thing I don't want is for it to happen to you. So there's so much uh, driving me just to, to, to try and make it as realistic as possible. And then, you know, you get the kick-ass team guys that are running all the training. Man, once you give those guys the direction, they're just gonna go and that's just, you know, so I I mean, I'd show up for the training sites and the guys would be so amped to make the training awesome. And, you know, the amount of effort that, (laughs) the amount of effort that guys would put in to make the training realistic was crazy. I mean, some of those, out at Land Warfare, some of the demolitions that would get set up, (laughs) 
they would take them three, four days. They'd stay yeah. out on the training, on a site for three or four days, setting demo up everywhere. So there's stuff blowing up and catching on fire and just smoke everywhere. Total, total mayhem. And you know, there's, there's only, this is the thing, when you're training, there's only so much you can do to simulate combat because what you can't do, there's a line that you cannot cross. You can't shoot people. You can't do it. You can't wound your men in training. And so that line can never get crossed. And so what can you do to get it as close to that line as possible? And the, the laser system that we had and the explosives and then all, just unleashing all that chaos and mayhem. And I was lucky that I got to experience that on the battlefield and come home and be like, bro. And you know, you mentioned it quickly, like your attitude towards it, but your attitude towards it is what the winning task unit attitude always was. Because it's real easy to go, that was bullshit, you had a bunch of guys set up on that hill. Like, yeah, you don't think Al-Qaeda is going to set people up on a hill? You don't think the Muj is going to set people in a spider hole in the middle of a compound? You don't think, by the way, all that stuff, we got it from actual after actions reports. So the fact that you and your, your task unit, instead of looking at everyone else as to why you didn't do a good job, you looked at yourselves and said, okay, what can we actually do better? How about we actually try and improve some things? How about we pick three, four things and we try and do those things better? And then you do those things better and, and you're right. Because, and you know this from working in training, you're, you already know what's gonna happen. Like you can see, you, you put a guy here, you put a bad guy over here, you put a bad guy over there, you've got a terrain feature like this, you know what's gonna happen. And you watch it unfold. And then you also know that if the leadership can make some good calls, it's gonna be no factor. If the if the platoons have good standard operating procedures, it'll be no factor. But if they're not, and the leadership starts to fall apart, I mean, everything falls apart. And that thing you just said about the fire team, I, I used to tell the task unit commanders this. I used to say, imagine you got you got your fire teams out there. Imagine if each one of your fire teams was doing something good that was moving you in the direction that you wanted them to move. Just imagine if that happened. And what happens when that occurs is the leader doesn't actually have to say barely anything other than we're getting out of here. Mm-hmm. And as soon as everyone, we're heading south, we're getting out of here, going to our old rally point. As soon as everyone knows that, they just make it happen. And to you, commander can do whatever he wants to do because the fire team leaders are gonna make things happen themselves. And and then and the opposite of that is there's no possible way you can control all these people if you have to tell them everything that you want them to do. Mm-hmm. You can't say, hey, you, you can't talk to all those people at the same time. You can't know what the vantage point, the best vantage point for a 60 gunner is gonna be on that little knoll. You can't do it. That guy has to understand what it is that is wanted from him and why it's important for him to do it. And then once he knows that, boom, he makes it happen. Yeah. And then, um I, I think it was my TU commander that you're talking about when you you said that you didn't you initially you weren't sure if quiet guys could lead because he wasn't he's not a loud guy like I'm a loud guy yeah he's he his personality is 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 different he's not super loud but he was direct clear and concise and he did a fantastic I I really enjoyed working with him yeah and he's a good example of that. I mean, he's, he's not the guy specifically I'm talking about, but he's a guy that was, you know, especially like the little things you were just barking out, put a 60 over there, get put that stretcher away, we're leaving it, get that wounded man. Those things, 
if you're not loud, it's it, it they just don't get heard. Yep. And so with your task unit commander, I noticed that and mm-hmm. was kind of like, hey man, you know, you need to get louder. And and what he did was this, you know, get, hey, you know who's pretty loud? My stupid SEA standing over all those little tattoos on his arm. He <laughs> might not be the smartest dude in the world, but he's yeah. loud. And when he tells you, hey, tell him to put that stretch away or whatever, then you or whoever in your in your task unit starts barking out the orders and it happens, you know? And so yeah, he did a he did a great job of that. And had the same attitude as you. Because he, he was experienced. You know, that was another cool thing. You know, you'd get, I'd get guys that were coming through training more experienced than me. And the good SEAL leaders would come through that training and be like, oh, that was awesome, man. Yeah, you, hey, you just kicked our ass. Thank you. We're going to try and do better. What did you see? Like, they would just want feedback, just want suggestions. And then you'd get other guys coming through that it was everyone else's fault and the training wasn't real. It's not realistic to get hit from three sides. Really? Why yeah. is that? Where do you see that in the Geneva Convention that you're not allowed to ambush from three sides? And that attitude never turned out well. It just never, it zero, zero percent of turning out well. Of, hey, the training is unrealistic, the training is this, the training is that. Like, no, actually, just do the SOPs, step up and lead, and everything works. And that was the other amazing thing is you'd see the same problems. And once a once a task unit got good, you, they, you couldn't even stop them because it's because no. it's forty guys against four or five. As you know, the training the training guys are it's like four or five guys out there shooting them up. Uh huh. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, when you're running those scenarios, you can't bring your guys back to life, which you can remotely do fast enough to apply a decent amount of pressure to when that troop is just gotten up on step yep. and then then everybody is so happy yeah yeah you can't you you're right you can't reset people you can't reset the op for quick enough because the because that's when you get a seal troop that's just in straight ag- aggressive murder mode and going hard every yeah. little thing they see they're assaulting it's awesome it's a beautiful thing to see yeah so um now were you you guys were you guys planning to go to Afghanistan no. during that workup? I don't think you were, were you? We were slated to go to Basra. And so we were gonna be going down to Southern Iraq and uh, working out of there. And then the request for forces popped up that they were asking for a sealed troop back in Afghanistan. And I think on the, on the numbered SEAL teams had been out of Afghanistan since somewhere around 2005. So they, mm-hmm. there'd been no presence whatsoever for numbered SEAL teams in Afghanistan in a while. Mm-hmm. This is uh, 2009. So initially there was, uh, it popped up and then, then it was confirmed. And then like over the, the Christmas holiday, they, they said, okay, hey, we're gonna send the, uh, my troop is going to be the troop to Afghanistan. What that looked like, no one knew. So you're going to Afghanistan because there's a deployment order that has to get signed to go anywhere that's got to be signed by the Secretary of Defense, right? And ours, to deploy a troop, to a, a SEAL troop to Afghanistan was in the book. It hadn't been signed yet. And so myself, the task unit commander, and one of the OICs who deployed with you, we did a pre-deployment site survey and uh, 
I, you know, I think it was like in February we went, oh, and usually on a PD, pre-deployment site survey or pre-PDSS, you go over, you see what's going on, then you come back. We went over there and I stayed. <laughs> me and, uh, and a CB chief came with me who was, uh, um, who was gonna set up our birthing and stuff with one of our support or, or all four of us went and then he and I never came back from that pre-deployment site survey. We just stayed there. So, yeah, so going into, you know, in an awkward situation where we're, we're going over there, they were working for the Army, um, SF, and they don't even know what they're going to do with us. A lot of them didn't want us because they'd had bad experiences, unfortunately, with SEALs before. And so what I did, what, and I kind of tore a page out of your book. I didn't know this is what you guys did, but this is what I did is I usually wear my hair like this. I went ahead and got high and tight to shift over to look a little bit more um, like the army does mm -hmm. because it's just a, it's just another way to establish rapport and I don't care about my hair mm -hmm. I just don't <laughs> um, and and so so when we got there the first place we went was the, to the the siege of Sodif, which is the uh, the 06 that's running everything there and I went into the sergeant major's office was a senior enlisted advisor. I went in his office and stood at a tent. I introduced myself and stood at parade rest. And he looked up from his desk and stared at me. And I'm in, you know, I, I got a clean uniform on. I got a high and tight. And he goes, I have never seen a SEAL like you before. <laughs> and I, I kept it real professional yeah. with him. And then he's like, hey, we don't know where we're going to put you. We don't know what we're going to do with you guys. We're working through that. Um, you guys have got to go ahead and brief the colonel at the time. So we we worked up a brief for the colonel. And my task unit commander went in and uh, had a meeting with him. And he was he's a pretty fired up type of guy. Um, and he asked he asked the TU commander like, "Hey, what do, what do you need? What do you need from me?" And uh, the boss told him, "Hey, I, I, we need this SECDEF to sign, sign our line item to get us to deploy here." And a week later, that happened. Legit. And he so in and, and it's in order where the SECDEF is supposed to sign stuff, and ours was like ninth back, and he went straight to our line item and signed it. So that colonel, we made a good impression on him. He had some pull, obviously, and uh, made an impression. Um, moving forward. So then we were looking at, well, okay, where are we going to go? We still didn't know where we were going to go. Um, and and we talked to the, 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 we had a briefing with the general and he explained, hey, I don't have enough partner forces for all of my, uh, you know, OD, SF ODA teams that are here because normally we're working by, with, and through. And he goes, so you guys are going to go on whatever con op is hot and plus up my ODAs, you are going to attrite the Taliban and deny them freedom of movement. Mm. And I thought, hallelujah. Yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. It, it doesn't. And then we, uh, we moved down to Camp Brown um, and uh, third group was running the Special Operations Task Force West down there. And we got there and I met with a senior enlist advisor there and he's like, hey, we really don't, we don't know where we're gonna put you guys. We don't have any space for you here. And 
we just stayed good, you know, and, and, and we established a relationship with him and the, 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 the commander there and the XO and the ops guys. And then two days later, there, the, the sergeant major takes me out and he's like, hey, you see this big tent? This, this is, they had this big tent right inside the gate. And he goes, this is where we were doing all our vehicle maintenance. And he goes, we're getting ready to move those guys over to another yard. You guys can have this. And so, so that was awesome. Mm-hmm. We were basically like, initially we were, we were the unwanted, um, you know, in-laws showing up for Christmas, like Randy Quaid and Christmas Story. And then now we were like, hey, old college buddies that had come into town. And third group was just so good to us. There was absolutely no parochialism whatsoever. And that was just a great experience working with them across the board. So how did you, when did you start putting together? How did you say, okay, this is what we're going to do? How'd that come about? When you they guys- just they just told us. There's like, here's what, here's, here's, we laid out, here's our capabilities. And there's like, well, here's how we'd like to use you. And we said, Roger that. Where can we help? We never came in and said, hey, this is, you know, this is what we do when we come in and do this X, Y, and Z because their targeting and their whole their whole philosophy was completely different mm-hmm. than what they did in Iraq. In Iraq, we were very personality-based and NSW as a whole, we were, we were reduced to personality-based ta- targeting. They're more about disruption. They'd be like, hey, Taliban's over here in freedom of movement. We're gonna go do stuff over there and then they're gonna have to come fight us and then it's gonna slow them down, you know, everywhere they're going or, hey, um, they're funding this war with opium. So are we gonna burn down opium fields and punish the farmer or do we wait till the Taliban collects the opium up into one spot and then go destroy it? And that's the kind of stuff that that we would do. We would go to the opium caches after the poor farmer who doesn't have a choice about what he's growing. is harvested, that they moved it to one spot and then we pop in destroy all their opium, stay there for, for a couple days and fight them and then leave. So so that was good, but our attitude was like, how can we help? Where can we help you? And they just gave us work and it was great. And you guys had some uh, pretty crazy ops. Yeah, I, I would say like, so, so the first op, we had the Advon crew that was there and we went out with, uh, um, uh, three one one six and their commandos and they had an op where they they went in and and took a uh, uh, a bazaar which is like a strip mall basically where they're facilitating a bunch of opium went in held that destroyed all the opium for a day and then fought everybody that came at us so we went out on that operation with them and uh, it, it it was good it it was a lot of fun um, and then then that got them used to us and. And, and what we brought to the table. And that was an op that was setting up in a co- concept of operations called Siege Engine. And that was like, the, I think the first frag order under it. And they would do a concept operation like, hey, here's what we wanna do with this stuff. And this, this Siege Engine was basically hammering the opium in the Hellman River Valley. And it culminated in with the, the last frag order and was when we went into Helmand in, or we went to Helmand into Marja, which is like, at the heart of the Taliban. It was a Taliban-controlled town. Coalition forces had never been inside of it. In a year later, it was 2010 or 11, the Marines went in there and cleared it, and it was a huge fire, huge firefight. 
prior to us going in there with this operation, and it, it was by when I say we, it was us, the Afghan commandos, the an SFODA, and the OAB above them. I think that's OAB, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So that detachment above them, and we just plussed them up, and their their OAB commander was equal rank to our task unit commander rank, but he, like my boss was just like, he didn't push back. He was like, hey, what do you need me to do? And that OEB commander really appreciated that relationship that he didn't have to, yeah. you know, bump heads. Big or ego battle over, big, well, I want to be in this position. Exactly, <laughs> or I want to make this call. So coalition forces had never been inside of Marja. They tried to go close to us and just gotten shot out. We choppered into... A, a bazaar, which was, we took four, the corner of four blocks and a, a, a pretty huge area where there was a ridiculous amount of opium consolidated. They were refining opium into heroin um, and making IED, uh, improvised explosive devices, all kinds of stuff there in the middle of their town. We went in there at night. We stayed there for four days and just just got after it wholesale um yeah it, i think there was eight thousand pounds of opium that we destroyed and there was a, it was a big operation there was a the the dea was involved there were fbi agents there it was a huge it was a huge crew and it and it was good to go uh and some of the lessons lessons learned from there is uh that's okay so like the first day we're, I was in one of the, the blocking positions there, and we were taking fire basically from the east and to the south because the way the different positions, it was kind of like a cross, the way it crossed out. So when we were taking fire from the south, you had to be aware that like, hey, I can't see them, but my bullets can see them, and that way there's a bunch of guys. And so we took fire from a tree line that was probably 50 yards from the compound that we were holding. And I was up on a I was up on a rooftop with another guy, and then I saw like four guys walking around in camis, and we were getting ready to light them up, but they were wearing the, the, the like the stuff the commandos were wearing. Like, hey, we got guys moving down here. We need a head count. Who's got the Afghani commandos? Because these guys look just like them. And then they came back with, oh, hey, we got everybody. No one's outside of our position. And then so we were getting ready. I'm like, don't shoot, don't shoot. And then. We called again. They confirmed again. No one's outside our position. Then finally, 20 minutes later, they're like, oh, wait, we had some guys walk out to go to, I don't don't know what they're doing, if they're going to the bathroom or what they were screwing around doing, but we could have just completely lit them up. Yeah. Um, We used a lot of 50 cal on that. We had the air support. We had everything from Hueys to B-1 bombers overhead all day long. Bombs were falling. The, the Taliban was absolutely furious that we'd come into this stronghold of theirs, captured this much, you know, all the opium. I think there was a, somewhere like 800 pounds of refined heroin. And the heroin was like packaged in these these bags that were like this big mm-hmm. and they had like a scorpion on it <laughs> and it said like 2008 after you know it had like a label little marketing it, branding a marketing like you know made made here in Afghanistan or whatever and so 
it was a huge affront to them that we were there. So after like the first two days, we basically killed off every local fighter. And then they started bringing guys up from Pakistan. And then, then it got kind of lively because the local fighters knew every piece of dead space, but the guys from Pakistan <laughs> weren't really familiar with the area. So they would be bumbling in the open, looking the other direction like, oh, ha ha, ba bum bum, get them. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, I think the third morning, this we got up and there's no fighting we're like well, when's it gonna because it, it's just like you get to set in your watch by you're like okay sun's up and uh we should start getting some shooting by now and there's nothing and there's nothing and so we radioed up to the to the headquarters we're like hey what what is going on did they quit and they're, <laughs> they're just laughing hysterically on the radio and they were able to tell this and i can't describe to you how but the guy who had the keys to the armory where they were storing all their weapons, they couldn't find him, probably because we bombed him over the night, and they couldn't get into the armory to get their stuff to come us, attack us. Boy, that new guy's going to get a beat down, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, it was a, just an audacious operation that worked out great and then did you guys take any casualties during that we time had, or, or did the afghans or did the army yeah so we had um a rocket hit the compound over next to mine and our dog handler and one of our corpsmen got fragged the corpsman the frag knocked a tooth out and then launched stuck in his tongue so he's real lucky that his tooth slowed down the momentum and then the dog handler got hit in the back uh there were several of the army guys that got straight up shot and then here's the awesome part like the um i, I feel like their call sign was pedro but it was air force medevac and as soon as they heard that we were troops in contact they lifted up and they would just be loitering real close to the firefight mm -hmm. and then like as soon as that that missed report came over and like, hey, we got a, a, a guy down. They came in and it would be like, I, I would be watching going, we're gonna get that helicopter shot down. And they would just come in. They had a, a, a mini, the door gunner had a mini gun. And they would just land, right? Like on top of the guy in the middle of the firefight, we don't care. And like, I, I would just, I was so proud. I could just be crying because it's such an awesome thing to see because it's complete disregard for their own personal safety and they're just waiting to jump in there and get guys. So luckily um, on that operation, no one was lost. And then everybody was, the guys that were shot were all recovered from their wounds. And what kind of damage, what kind of damage did you guys do to the enemy? Significant. I, I think it was, it was pretty significant. I mean, um, there was just a huge amount of drugs and and their equipment and things that we destroyed and then it, it just had to hurt them psychologically that they thought that that was they had complete freedom of movement and then all of a sudden we came in and stayed there and just did the meat stomp on them for four days and you guys weren't only doing urban situations you guys were going into other scenarios where you're like digging in on hillsides and whatnot too right right so later on we you know we that 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 saying take the high ground or it will take you because all of our operations i think we only did we did two 
23 total operations on that thing. Most of them were multi-day. And um, so there were only two that we were in and out in the same cycle of darkness. And uh, typically, you know, we would do terrain studies and we're like, hey, we got to defend these positions. And so when we had a compound that we're like, here's the compound, this is the compound that we're going to take and hold. Where's the high ground around it? And then we need to get elements up on that high ground as well. Uh, there were also, there was, there were two like um, time sensitive targets where we came in as a, a quick reaction force where other elements were, there's another um, coalition soft element and um, SF element that had gotten assaulted in a valley and they had to strong point a building because they'd been hit in this valley and then we came in on the high ground mm. um, during the night and then the next morning, because most times the Taliban didn't fight at night because we had the advantage. The next morning when the Taliban assaulted them, we were on the high ground behind them and laid the hammer down and, and then were able to, to get stuff to where those guys were able to get out that day. Uh, yeah, so we were, taking, we were taking high ground positions quite, you know, when it made sense. There's one operation we were on where there what really wasn't any high ground. And so there, there were some, there, there were like the furthest we could clear away from the compound that we were holding was 30 yards. Hmm. And then it was a dense like green zone and a wall. Pe people could completely creep up. So we had guys go, you know, we identified that. We're like, okay, what are we going to do? And then someone's like, hey, we can put, well, let's go put, pop flares out there, you know? And so, it, 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 you know, that's like going back to, to Vietnam. Vietnam stuff. But guys went out and placed those, and then boom. You know, we, we when once the bullets started flying and we were, the, the troops in contact, the tick, as we say in the vernacular, started to really get up to speed, and then all of a sudden you're like, like, oh, those pop flares are going off, okay start pumping 40 mic mic over there or whatever. And uh, um, yeah, it was, it was cool. There's uh, one of the stories we have back, back in Marja, the guys brought a, uh, the ALGL, which is like this 40 millimeter chain gun. And then it has this, the new one has like a computer mount that goes on the top. And so you look at the screen and then you, you put the little cursor on on what what your target is, okay? And then it lases it and then gives you an elevation correction based on the ballistics for the 40 millimeter. And then you raise it up, you depress the lever, dunk, 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 <laughs> and then just boop, 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 boop. So there was, uh, there was guys in a, in a tree line um, that were shooting at our guys and they had set this thing up and basically it's a 40 millimeter sniper rifle. And they they had the, uh, uh, like a predator was overhead watching, giving them feedback on the fire. So they shoot at these guys in this tree line and then they ask the predator for a battle data damage assessment and the predator comes back with two EKIA, which enemy killed in action, one ran away on fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. And uh, what about, I know you told me a story one time about 
you guys weren't in the high ground. There's somebody, there was somebody like across the valley that had a little elevation on you, and you guys were digging in and digging in and digging in, sandbag, sandbag, sandbag as much as you could. Yeah. So there, there was one one of the operations we were in, uh, um, Sawali Cot, and that this was one of the places that was bad enough where they actually came at us at night. So we did our insert. Helos dropped us off, and we were we're in our perimeter getting ready to start our offset patrol in to hit these compounds we get when PKM and two RPGs just come zipping overhead. And luckily, we had, uh, whenever we got inserted, we always had Apaches that escorted us in. They went over and started hammering these guys. They wound up getting, they, they wound up killing, killing like 30 people. And, and what had happened was, it, as it turned out, we were offset from a target, but where our offset was, Put us right next to where some other a bunch of other Taliban guys happened to be, and they thought we were coming to get them, so they maneuvered. Then when we we did our offset patrol, got to our target, guys came at us in the dark. Uh, we could see them coming from the high ground. We laid a fire team pushed out, shot them right when they came around the corner, completely no factor, and then uh, you know just thirty wet. When they got within, they came around a corner 30 yards away from two AW gunners who just cut them down. And then uh, one of those guys, I think later, we, we figured out was probably some bigwig with the Taliban. So we took that compound and we took the high ground immediately behind it. But it was in a mountain range. So there was, there was always going to be high ground around our high ground. The next day, once they figured out where we were at, and then they got on all the high ground around us, Eesh. and then they just brought it. And I can rem- so the where we were at on that high ground, it was like the ground was too hard to dig. We always brought ten empty sandbags per guy so that you could fill them up and make defensive positions. We couldn't fill sandbags up because it was like trying to dig in your parking lot. So we just stacked all the rocks we could stack around us, and then. They kicked this thing off with a barrage of RPGs and then a, just a steady stream of PKM fire, which is, you know, their belt-fed machine gun. And I remember being laying flat on my chest and there's like eight inches above my head are the right. And, and by the way, I'm not, I took my body armor off because I was, oh, it's hot. I'm going to take my body armor off and my helmet. And I'm like, oh, got my helmet back on, and I snaked into my body armor. Everybody did, and then these the bullets are hitting the rocks steadily, eight inches above my head. Come, and the gunner is he's a, he's 1,100 yards away, and he's just basically you know almost lobbing doing, them in, lobbing them in, because I I'd been shooting at, we'd been shooting at the guy a little bit, and we just couldn't. He kept sliding behind a rock, and it was too windy to get him, and. Uh, we had, uh, I think we had a Reaper overhead, but in the middle of the day in Afghanistan, when the rocks are 90 degrees and a person's 90 degrees, it, it, it's worthless. They can't see people. And the Afghanis are not sitting out in the open where you can kill them. So I, I was like, and at the moment I wasn't scared, but I'm like, okay, I'm getting ready to get shot. <laughs> and I'm, I'm getting ready to die by the sword. This is what I get. And that was... Uh, and that was it. And then our SATCOM radio antenna got shot and got knocked over. And so now we had no comms to get air support because we desperately needed to get some more air in. And then my boss, 
I, I don't know how he got shot. He didn't get shot. But the TU commander is like, all right. And he just got up there and, and <laughs> fixed the antenna and uh, um, was hitting it. Well, down in the compound, our guys just started lobbing mortars. And we used, uh, uh, we had the, uh, they started using the delayed fuses. So they were detonating 25 meters above the ground, which, which lays down an impressive frag pattern and tamped things down a bit. And then we just got hammered and hammered and we're like, oh, this is not gonna be good. Um, like 15 minutes later, they're like, hey, we got some air to you. And it's not, it's not like we weren't without air cover because we did have a Reaper and I think a, a Predator showed up too, but they're, they're just limited. So two French jets showed up. And the, a lot of the coalition forces will be difficult with you sometimes when you're calling for air support and argue with you. And I'm not sure that these guys would have argued with us, but we just said, hey, there were two main ridge lines that we were taking heavy fire from. And we said, do, you know, we, uh, give us a show of force flight is where you f they'll fly real low mm -hmm. over those ridge lines and see if it pushes their heads down. And they came in <laughs> right over both ridge lines and that tamped it down because they got down and then a little while later uh that that slowed things down and it was more manageable now for us we get our heads up and start to shoot back a little bit then the b1 bomber shows up and they've got bombs to waste you know and they gave us uh four 500 pound bombs on each ridgeline air burst at 100 yard increments boom 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 you know and then that hammered them a bit then we were able to isolate some of the other guys use our own organic weapons to hammer the other guys and then we were like Phew, man this place is bad <laughs> the next day so we were supposed to extract that night and we were like hey when's our extract oh and <laughs> at two in the afternoon on the high ground position we ran out of water and it was 114 degrees. So there's no shade, there's no water, it's just a massive suck fest. And uh, they're, they're, nothing's coming till it gets dark. So we just waited, the helos came in after dark, kicked out pallets of water and ammo to resupply us. And they're like, by the way, you're staying for another 24 hours. Because what we didn't know is that us being there was having a huge effect on the whole battle space. And some other elements were able to adjust their position. And some of the Afghan uh, surrogate forces were able to get a whole bunch of stuff done. But oh, when we got that over the radio, I was like, oh, we're going to stay here. Like, Don't they know that we almost got ha like, hammered? Like, This is the first time up until then we always had the upper hand. They weren't really worried about getting like just getting overrun and in this point there was a real fear any second now we're gonna get overrun um and then they're like you're staying for another day and i remember talking to my two platoon chiefs i'm like hey we're staying here for another day and you're gonna push out and clear this stuff and we're gonna reinforce this position and here's what we're gonna do and then they, they, they took a deep breath and they're like okay roger that and um we stayed another day, and the next day we we uh, we got into it. They they threw it, it, came at us pretty hard again. But then we uh, we had a little bit more air support. 
we had developed a relationship with the, the 82nd Airborne Combat Air Brigade, their Apache helicopters, which are like tanks in the air. Mm-hmm. They lived right down the road from us. And so we would have barbecues with them and we would, ha- we would run a range and have them over and then they would come shoot at the range and we'd stand around and bullshit. They broke their sleep cycle. So this is really important for pilots. They have got to have a X amount of rest before they can fly. And they do not break their sleep cycle lightly. They broke their sleep cycle to come support us. And then they put themselves at risk where like the Afghanis don't like helicopters. So when a helicopter shows up, they'll sink. They flew low on purpose because they'll go, oh, that helicopter's low. I think I can hit it. And then they, they can't resist. They come out and then they'd ham- these guys would just hammer them. <laughs> and uh, they came in the next night and that, that was awesome. Yeah, so I was still at Trade At while I, all this was going on. And I remember I would get emails um, from you, from, the, from your task unit commander as well. And we would just be talking about, you know, like, hey, this is what's going on. And I remember I was signing the um, emails back to you guys as the spiritual advisor for TU Triad. <laughs> <laughs> I was there in spirit, dude. Yeah, and we, and and yeah, we were we were hitting back up to you because there was a lot of there's a lot of massaging and stuff that has to get done. You know, we got like I, I was looking at a picture in the hallway the other day and it's that that classic picture with the yellow smoke and Mikey's there and and Seth's right behind him and I never really studied everyone's gear but I looked at Seth and Seth's got the enhanced battle rifle which is the M14 that just in you know the situation it was it didn't work for our lasers and our sights so they these guys up at warcom fixed it up so you could use it and have 762 on the battlefield and you guys all had that And we got there right away, and they were just getting ready to to field the SCAR Heavy. And we got them to field it first overseas, which is not what they like. They like to field it first. Everyone trains with it. We got them to field it overseas. That was awesome because all of our guys had, you know, 173 grains of democracy and justice flying out there so when you when we would take when we take an app when we take a compound right take clear and clear compound hold a compound the afghanis would they were used to five five six so they would know like okay it's pretty windy today and um i'm out at 500 yards it's not likely you're going to hit me with your 500 your five five six round so they would be like kind of out in the open and we would just kill them and then 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 that that circle would go out and our guys were regularly getting guys at five, six, seven, eight hundred yards. Um, and with, these are just off the scar heavy. With it, they, so here's what they did. Most of our snipers took the, the night force three by five to 15 scope that was on our, um, our SR-25s, which that, that gun had some issues and, and would jam a lot and then just put them on their scars and that's what they patrolled with. So they would have it all the way down in three and a half power. So if you're patrolling, you can just swing it up. It's got a low magnification. So you have both eyes open and you can shoot and then they can put the bipods out and hit stuff far out. And 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 those things were were in freaking valuable. And, and, and it just brought a whole new dynamic to the battlefield. 
and it, and you know the, the scar had some problems there's it, it's not a uh, a direct impingement thing where the gas doesn't go all the way back it has a gas piston like the m14 did mm-hmm. they told us don't lube those and guys would still lube them and then it would jam up and they're like oh this gun sucks i'm like well i hope you lubed your gas piston yeah i put a lot of lube on it I'm like don't do that <laughs> don't do that so (laughs) so that worked great and that that was that was awesome that we were able to get get that over there and the the commodore at the time basically gave us whatever we wanted and asked for the the support we got from group one was incredible now you guys you guys didn't really take that many count i mean no one got killed right no one got killed how many guys got wounded Two guys got wounded with frag. Um, you know, we had a couple concussion injuries where guys got knocked out, uh, and, and it's hard to quantify how serious that is. And then um, on on our turnover operation, when SEAL Team One came to relieve us, is when uh, when when Dan Canaston got hit by that, that IED and lost both his legs. Yeah. And uh, that I mean, ho- horrible event, and and. Thank goodness, we're just like, there's so many things that lined up to save Dan's life because we'd been inserted for an offset patrol, went in there, um, got got in there, uh, secured the, the bazaar, and then we pushed guys up to high ground like we always do, except for the Taliban suspected, you know, oh, well, they'll if they come to take it, they mined the entire high ground. So as that element was pushing up, um, there was an explosion, and then there was quiet. And then TU commander gets on the radio, hey, was that a controlled debt? And uh, um, the OIC who deployed with you yeah. came back, and he's like, it was not a controlled debt, and we've got some wounded. And we're like, okay, work through it. Get on the SATCOM, the... Uh, the 47s that had dropped us off it was an sop for them to have a flight surgeon on one of their birds and so they hadn't made it all the way to bat base or it may have been that they lawyered around for a little bit that could have been too so they were right there and there was surgical stuff right there when because dan's wounds were absolutely horrible um and then once the EOD guy started, once that happened, and it was lucky because the charge went low order, so if it had gone high order, it would have killed like six guys. He discovers that the, they're in a minefield, basically. His metal detector is getting overrun, so he's got a bayonet or a big screwdriver, and he's probing the way out in front of the guys so they could get Dan out and onto the medevac that later got him back. How, how long had you been on the ground for? Like a matter of 10, 15 minutes? No. Um, we, we did like a, we did an offset. So we, it, we patrolled in for like three or four clicks. So okay. it was so a little, a few hours. It, 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 it wasn't a couple hours, but it was inside of an hour. That's why I'm not sure how long those 47s were loitering or if they were on their way back and they were able to turn them around. But they, they were back quick and they had that surgeon on there, which... I think really made the difference for 
for Dan, who, you know, now he's, the guy's running marathons. Yeah. I haven't run a marathon lat yet. I feel yeah. like such a loser. And he's competed in the Olympics a couple times right now? He got a gold in the Paralympics, right? Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, he's awesome. Awesome guy. Yeah, that was, that was, that was devastating. Devastating. I remember we got word back that, you know, one of, you, one of the guys, and we, we just assumed it was one of your guys, actually, because I don't think we even knew the turnover that, you know, the turnover was taking place. I assumed it was one of your guys. But, you know, and then, then I heard it was Dan. And um, I remember the first phone call that I got, and I was like, is he going to live? Oh, yeah. And at this point they were like yes he is because i mean i know it was like touch and go mm -hmm. but then that the first person that i don't i don't remember who it was was like yes he's stable he's gonna live and i was like then we're good to go and i, I just yeah. remember thinking thank god he's you know he's gonna make it you know yeah the uh the like on our on like the second or third op we were there our guys were, Mick, were doing an op with it, one. We always had Afghani commandos with us because they were the partner force, the, the ODAs we were mm -hmm. doing. And one of them stepped on a mine and it blew both his legs off and part of his arm. And uh, one of our guys got cut in the face with his femur. And then there were some issues where when they were putting the all of our tourniquets were failing because the they had a plastic windlass mm. that was was going and so the the one guy he that got hit and they got cut in the face with his femur and it, it messed him up mentally for a little bit and i didn't know what to say to him so i didn't say anything to him and i you know what i wish i had because mm. i've come to a conclusion now with a lot of this pain that everybody carries around that that it it's it's a poison you carry inside of you and if you talk about it mm -hmm. it lets it out and then then it's kind of detoxing you a little bit and yeah. so like i don't know you know if you're listening to this and you're in a situation and someone's gone something through horrible and you don't know what to say say something just sit down there and and just talk with them about it you know ask how they're doing see if they can get it off their chest because it helps yeah i the same thing. We had guys that got like I had one guy that got shot in the chest plate and got shot through the um, camelback on his back. Those are two different operations too. I mean, like, so what does that do to you when you're thinking how close was I to just getting killed twice? You know, in two different scenarios. And for sure, I think you know if, if you don't. And you, what is you know what what do we do in the teams? Like make a joke about everything. Everything's a big joke, which probably helps in some cases. I think it does. <laughs> uh, but yeah, let let you definitely gotta if you get the opportunity to talk to people about what's going on, and what I think it does is even more than like. Well, I'm sure I don't know because I'm not a psychologist, but. Okay, there's the idea that you're like letting this stuff out, right? Mm -hmm. I'm gonna let this stuff out. There's also the idea that when you talk about something, you you articulate what you're thinking, and mm -hmm. you have to like put it into words that somehow they become a thing that you can manage. You, you, yes, that makes complete so, sense. So like, when you don't talk about it, it's just like you have a conversation with somebody about whatever you you want to debate with somebody about some subject. If you never s debated about it before you're gonna be at a disadvantage.
because you don't really understand all the ins and outs. But when you actually talk to someone about it, then you say, oh, here's here's a point that I can make here and here's a point that I can make there. If you don't talk about this stuff, it's just sitting in there and it doesn't get any better. You don't understand it any better. Mm-hmm. But when you talk, when you just like we were talking on the last podcast, how when you teach something, you understand it more because you have to detach from it to look at it from the outside. Well, if I explain something to you, I'm explaining it to myself too. You know, I'm explaining yeah. it to myself too. And I told you this yesterday, you know, when um when I had Tom Fife on the podcast who was in World War II, Korea and Vietnam and got a purple heart and all those and it and I asked him I I, I asked him some question about losing guys when he was a battalion commander in Vietnam. 60 years ago, I didn't say that part, but I'm like, you know, what was you know, what was, how did you guys handle casualties or something like that? And I, I don't know what the question was, but here he is, this, you know, army colonel, retired army colonel, and he's talking about the guys that he lost 60 years ago and he got choked up. And I remember looking at him and I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is the way I'm always going to feel about the guys that I lost. It's never going to go away. Yeah. And like just hearing him talk about it and seeing that reaction, I was like, oh, okay. And that's what I tell all my all my bros now. I'm like, hey, you're always going to feel that way. Like mm-hmm. it's it's just here's a guy that was in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. He got a Purple Heart in all those, and he gets choked up talking about the guys that he lost in Vietnam and Korean World War II. But you know, I specifically asked him about Vietnam. So when you talk about these things, I think you get some kind of handle on them because you have to articulate them in such a way that you can then. It's like uh, what what you have to name your enemy, right? You have to you have to name your enemy. They say if you don't name the enemy, then you, how are you going to fight him? Well, it's the same thing. When you actually say, "Hey, you know, I really feel bad about this," or whatever, mm-hmm. or I think I could have done this better, or I think I made a mistake, or I wish we wouldn't, or whatever it is that you're thinking, you know, whatever survivor's guilt, whatever that thing is that you have when you say it, you 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 get to look at it, and you get to look at it from the outside and go, "Okay, I, I, yeah." I'm explaining this to Jason and I'm telling him what I'm thinking. And then while I'm explaining it to you, I'm explaining it to myself is what's happening. And that's why I think talking about it, not only does it get it out, but it gets you a handle on it somewhat. Yeah. The process of it coming out of your mouth and then back into your ears or maybe letting different parts of your brain adjust and deal with it. But yeah. Check. What else? Uh, so you come home from uh, Afghanistan. I mean, any, so like, and, and here's another thing I, I want to talk about too. And and you brought this up in this the the book you were covering the last couple podcasts about fear. I'm like, once that first bullet goes by, or the it just like everything shuts down, and you just go to what you're supposed to do, and then you do it. It's like in the moment. All emotion goes away. There's no fear. But then afterwards and before <laughs> is when you have the fear. Like I would lay in my bed there and I would completely was would picture notification going on for my wife. Like I, I, I could see the guys in blues driving out to my house. Or, you know, okay. There's just a good chance that I'm going to get severely maimed, and I I could picture myself sitting in a wheelchair outside of uh you know the 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 paddock that I have my horses in, and I can't even ride them anymore. And, and, and you know now I'm getting emotional about that, which kind of it's it's odd to me, but that that that's weird how how it you know 
when you're in the moment, you're not afraid. Later on, when you're thinking about it, is is when you you start to to freak out about it a little bit. Yeah, there's no doubt, and this has been confirmed over and over and over again that the waiting is the worst. I, I that's just it's just yep. you're just anticipating, and then once you're going, you're going, and you got stuff to do. And I was never in situations where I like didn't have anything to do. And there was right. bad things happening where I was like, well, the, the few times I've been mortared where I'm like yeah. sitting there waiting for a mortar to either hit me or not hit me. That sucked a lot, but it wasn't yeah, a long, was it wasn't a like, boom, it wasn't like an hour though. Yeah. You know, it's like, foom, foom. okay, we got about 30 seconds. I don't know, maybe a minute before we find out where, where it's going to be at. But I also think that. You know, if you're scared of dying, it's going to be a real nightmare all the time, I think. Yeah, and like like, paralyzing. like, like I said, that one point in uh, Swalicott where I'm like, okay, I'm going to get, this is what I get. It was just, was there was not fear, it was just an acceptance. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get shot here pretty soon. I wonder how bad it's going to hurt or burn or whatever it is. And it's like, all right, that's going to happen. Okay. Now, later on, you think about it. Um, there's one other thing. I think on an earlier podcast, people were asking a question about if you had a routine. Because I had a really definite routine that I went through prior to going out in, a- in Afghanistan. And it wasn't like anything religious, but I w- I'd sit down, I'd be in my room, and you know, we'd have everything but like. Well, we had everything in our room, but we had a ready room and all that. So Iris had sent me this CD from this country singer, Corblund. I'd put that on, and then the first thing I'd go through is I'd change out every battery in all of my gear. Because you got, like, your Pelter headsets, your nods, all that stuff's getting new batteries. Then I would go through and look at all my battle maps, clean out the ones from the last one, get my new battle maps for this one, study them. Then I would always, always, always carry 24 hours worth of water with me and then pack out my food. Then I would go get fresh batteries for my radios. Then I would go through all of my gear, strip it down, put it back together for anything that I, any special gear and equipment I needed for that op. There was a, a Later on, I liked to carry a 60 power spotting scope because I was spending a lot of time on high ground. Make sure that was all clean up. Um, make sure that my radio was charged with crypto, all that stuff. It would take me like two hours to go through that whole process. And then we would go outside, we would do our comms checks together and uh, um, go out and get on the helicopters and get after it. And so that that routine right there is like, so good because if you had all that stuff ready and you just sat there for two hours, that would not be fun. <laughs> no, no, and I mean you got to go. You got to check everything three or four times. Yeah, I, I remember riding with a guy uh, on a, on a ride and his his battery died on his nods in the middle of the you know when he's driving on a convoy. I'm like, good grief. Yeah, you didn't put a fresh one in. That cost like ninety cents, dude. My my first deployment to Iraq, we were doing that and we stopped. We stopped changing batteries for every op like after a week because the ops were like an hour long. Yeah. <laughs> and 
all of a sudden we realized we were going to run out of batteries. Like we yep. just didn't have enough batteries. So we just went to like, hey, carry an extra battery. And if, you know, if it dies, then whatever, change it. Yeah, ours were always all night. Yeah, you guys were going out all night, isolated. You know, we were 10 feet from our Humvees uh -huh. or whatever, 20 yards from our Humvees. You have a big stack of batteries in there. It didn't matter. It's a totally different scenario. Yeah, I think that um, I, I would always be super busy with doing stupid, you know, officer stuff whatever for yeah. you all out you know getting this brief checking in with this guy whatever doing all that stuff and i i would just get all ready and i it seems like i would work up until i got into a humvee that's the way yeah and that, that's what my tu commander did too and it was hard on him because he would go on the op already on a rest deficit yeah yeah and then when you're going to stay out there for two days eventually you know he, he's got to go down but they they we figured out like uh um he would he would pass it off to one of the other OICs to be the GFC because he didn't want me to be the guy talking to the JTAC about what to drop. <laughs> he had more <laughs> sense I, than I that. I was well, I would be pretty liberal. There's a like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's a picture of me and Dave Burke. Good deal, Dave. Yeah, good deal, Dave. And it's it's in downtown Ramadi. I think it's on the roof of Cop Falcon, and we're both just completely asleep, sitting there just asleep. Yeah, because and the same thing because when I'd go out, I'd a lot of times I'd been awake and you know late, all of us would be awake for a long time. So you get in the field and you're like, cool, I can sleep now. <laughs> the, and and that was like okay, so that was like one of the hardest things as a leader is like you get there, you get in the OP, and everybody wants to stay awake, and that means we're all gonna hit the wall mm -hmm. in like six hours. So it's you you gotta like go and say, hey, you four guys. Get in there, and I need you to take sleep so you're ready to bump out on these security positions or these fighting positions or whatever it is, because it's coming. Yeah. Everyone's just going to hit the wall at the same time, and you're all asleep. So tired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all right, so that's a, was that the last op you did was with Dan? Was that the very last op, or did you do a couple mm -hmm. more? I don't remember. It was pretty close to the last op because one of our platoons had already redeployed at oh, that yeah. point. Um, you know, in, in leadership, you're the first one there and the last one to go. So we didn't go until the last bird. But I think, I think that was our. If it wasn't, it wasn't one our last one. It was our second to last one. It was going was coming home from this deployment any different than coming home from your other deployments? Oh, yeah. I've been there for eight months, and it was the most kinetic deployment of of my career. So, yeah, they, and and uh, NSW started doing the, the third location decompression stop, where they're like, hey, before you get home, we want you to sit down and blow off some steam and uh, sit down with... Uh, you know, a psych and talk to the psych a little bit. And our our redeployment flight kept getting bumped. So we redeployed like, I think, eight days later than we were supposed to. And every day it was like, hey, the bird's gonna go tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Get up, muster. They're like, nope, maybe tomorrow. And we did that for eight days in a row. Finally, we got on it. And it was getting so long, I, I was really angry. I'm like, just let us go home. <laughs> And uh, they held their ground, and I'm really glad that they, you know, held their ground because when we got to the other location and you started drinking, I was just a freaking idiot. Drank way too much. Um, but 
I needed it. I needed to blow off some steam and stuff. And it was good to have the other guys to talk to and, and, and to be somewhere where, you know, uh, my loved ones didn't have to see me being just a complete buffoon. And then, you know, and then I, I got home, um, and, uh, yeah, that, that, that it, it took a lot. So, so I live kind of in, at the time I was living in East County, San Diego, mm-hmm. And the area I live in is really similar to areas of Afghanistan. So I would find myself in my yard, you know, and I'm, I was back and constantly scanning the high ground and, and doing a technique called ballooning. And that's where, yeah, I'm here and then I'll sidestep here and then I'll backstep here. And it's so like a, it, you're just making it difficult if a sniper's aiming at you that you're hoping that he's squeezing the trigger as you're stepping to the side and you're going to step out of his his crosshairs, doing stuff like that. And then, um, you know, when when you go eight months and every stressor that you have is a fight or flight, full-blown stressor, whether it's the enemy shooting you or indirect fire coming in, it's hard for your body to come back and then differentiate between somebody not agreeing with you on something you just said or anything else um my sleep was completely jacked up based on us operating a lot at night uh and i i had i've always had issues with my sleep so on the deployment i'd started taking taking ambien and they were given to giving it to me and so uh i was having difficulty sleeping without that um and then you know i think it was the first night or second night i was home the dog started barking and i kept a gun on the nightstand which is just just an sop now it's in a safe because i have kids but dogs are barking i roll out of bed grab the gun and i'm at the ready waiting just like oh, okay and then iris you know rolls out of bed and she or, or looks up and sees me standing there naked holding a gun next to the bed breathing heavy scanning both the entrances and she's just like oh wow what came back and you know i i didn't get a chance to talk about um my wife and where i met her but she was a wrangler on a ranch that uh we go to a lot for training when i met her and she's just just hard a good 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 partner soulmate and uh and she's been extremely patient and put up with a lot of stuff that most women wouldn't have and when i came back i was doing i was drinking heavily just and mainly, you know, as I assess my drinking issues, it was because I was so wound up that it would be four beers as to where I could get myself back to where everybody else walks around in their daily life where they're just calm. Because I was just like, um, and that's just a factor from one is not sleeping. And then the other one is just coming back from a deployment like that. You get It takes you a while to decelerate when people are shooting at you and all these horrible things are happening. And then now you're back in society, but you're, you're not really, or you're back here in, in the U.S., but you're not really, you're, you're, you're not all the way back. And so, uh, and, and my temper was like a millisecond fuse. We'll get mad about stupid stuff and all kinds of stuff. And finally, she said to me, she said, you know, hey, baby, you're not you're not the same guy you were when you left. And uh, I really want you to talk to somebody. 
And so immediately I got on the phone, I called up the, the psych and I started seeing the psych and talking through a lot of the stuff that I had going on and started working at getting better. Um, and it's a, it's a long process and it was, it was helpful to talk to those guys. Uh, it, to say that you have PTSD and, and is, is somehow maybe admitting a weakness. And I, I don't know if, if it's, you know, how do you define PTSD? Mm-hmm. For me, it's like, okay, well, if I'm in a crowd, I'm get hyper alert. And when I came back from this woman, I was hyper alert all the time and adrenaline, just a constant steady drip of adrenaline going in. And that's why I was kind of uh, drinking heavily to calm down. Um, you know, and then the vicious cycle I got into with the Ambien and that's, uh, and then my sleep been jacked up and then inflammation and all the other health, health issues that came with that. So that was like kind of the first step. The second step was at this time I came over to the training detachment and, and you know, 2010 and was now running the land warfare section for you. Um, and Doc Parsley, Kirk Parsley was our, our uh, diving medical officer at group one. Mm-hmm. And he's a SEAL who later on went and got his, uh, his you know doctorate and became a doctor he kind of at that point was discovering that all these health issues that we were dealing with was were were revolved heavily around sleep and so he was able to help me like get off the ambien start doing stuff to take you know natural things to get my sleep back in order did you ever do the sleep study did he put oh, you on the sleep? He didn't, sleep but I, I did a sleep study later, and uh, um, yeah, I have sleep apnea, mm-hmm. and so I've got a CPAP machine that I sleep with for that, and, and that helps, but, you know, you, the, the sleep and diet are a linchpin, like sleep, diet, and exercise. There's mm-hmm. the three pillars of good health, probably. Is there a fourth pillar? Probably, like, hypnosis, or I don't know. Those are the big three, I would say. Mm-hmm. And uh, getting that sleep fixed up, helped my mental state a huge bit and it helped my physical state. I was in terrible shape at the time. I had a a lot of different joint pains and ailments. And so that was good. You know, I was taking melatonin and he goes, how much melatonin do you take? I'm like, oh, I'm taking six milligrams. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, you need, your body is gonna not make its own. And ideally you get to the point where you're not even taking, you know, like some magnesium at night to, to help you calm down. Mm. And so that, that started me on the, on the path and that I was really glad because otherwise I, I know guys that can't sleep without Ambien. And I don't think that they're really, they're not really getting into the sleep and it's just, it's not good. And at this time you were working at Trade Mm-hmm. Came back and took over the, the land warfare yeah. uh, senior enlisted role there as it should be yeah that's a, that was my dream usually guys don't ask to go to nyland and and i was like hey please send me out there this is what i like yeah and uh and that that was good to go um you know what's it's it's really interesting and we talked about this earlier as we applied pressure mm-hmm. to the different troops we would see troops that were that were loaded with superstars mm-hmm. they had so much raw talent but then they didn't own their mistakes and they were just terrible they'd be terrible and we'd be like like, what i know you guys are good to go what is going on here and then we would see troops 
that necessarily did not have a whole lot of raw talent, but they were very humble and they were they kept their their op plan super simple and they would just they would be the troops that that like the, we couldn't the op four just couldn't our opposition forces couldn't keep up with them. That's just a fact, and it's over and over and over and over again and again and again, and the the people the people that it's interesting too because you might think well if you're not humble then you're going to be cocky and if you're cocky with the training guys then they're going to be more judgmental and they're going to push you harder and they're going to jump on everything that mistake you make it's not like that it's no. like it's so clear that when a when a troop was humble they would fix themselves and fix the problems and the mistakes that they made and when they weren't, you know, you get four or five guys, six, seven guys in a troop that are cocky and arrogant. And they, not only are they not owning their own mistakes, but they're blaming everyone else inside their own troop. It just turns, it's so horrible to watch. Vicious. It's, it's horrible to watch because they're at each other's throats. They're blaming each other for everything. And no one's taking ownership. It's just a total nightmare. And it has nothing to do. It's like even completely objectively looking at a troop, you just you just watch them fall apart because someone doesn't say, hey, you know what? Maybe we should just work together and try and do better, mm -hmm. which is essentially all you need to do is say, wait a second. It took us 12 minutes. The trade act guys timed us on getting our head count, leaving that building. It took us 12 minutes. And in that 12 minutes, we took four more casualties. Maybe we should look at how we're getting our head counts. Whatever, just whatever little thing. Yep. And if you're an arrogant person, you just, it just, and then get, guess what? Then you end up with a bunch of new guys that are all arrogant because they're all just imitating you. You know, they're all imitating the senior guys. Mm -hmm. There's not a new guy that checks into a team and goes, you know what? My chief seems a little bit arrogant. I'm going to be more humble. That doesn't happen. No, you're a new guy. You're like, I'm going to act like my platoon chief. That's what I'm going to do. And, that's what you do, and you end up with a whole <laughs> whole task unit of just people that don't want to say that they did anything wrong. And it, again, it was just horrible to see because it, it, it'd be guys that were all over. I mean, guys, we, like we know everyone, you know, yeah. know everyone on on the West Coast, know every guy, like they're our yep. friends, and you'd be like, bro, no. And it was, it was so hard. That was the hardest part of the job was 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 having to, you know, you're looking at your friend. And saying, "Bro, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not like you're not. I'm not just saying this. You guys are doing really, really bad, mm -hmm. and you need to fix some of this stuff, or it's you're not going to get through it. You're going to get reloaded." Yeah, and yeah, that was that was the worst part of the job, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And then it's super tricky just to to be able to debrief these guys and do it in a manner where you're you don't sound condescending. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um. God, I love that job. I would, I would, you know, go out there. I had my little voice recorder, and I would mm -hmm. sit there and I would take all my notes in the voice recorder because you can't write while you're all this stuff's going on. And sometimes I would just record the guys as they're freaking out, mm -hmm. pan, total panic, screaming at everyone. I just record them, and I'd get back and I'd be like, "Hey, man, okay, when you guys got strong point into that building." What were you thinking? You wanted everyone to do? He's like, they just needed to move, and I go, "Okay, let me do, let me just play what you were saying." And you'd press play on the recorder, and the guy'd be like, <laughs> and you couldn't even understand him. Couldn't even understand him. Yeah. And I'd be like, man, bro, this isn't just like 
this isn't just me. And there's some guys that didn't like me, you know, or whatever. It's like, it's not just me. And I like you, actually. I think yeah. you seem like a good dude. I'm just saying, like, these mistakes are bad. And they're not just made up, man. No. They're not just, like, I'm not just making you up. You guys ran to the wrong target. And the whole task unit ran to the wrong target. You're in charge of the assault. And you ran to the wrong target. And everyone followed you. And that just, you know, you didn't you didn't do what you were supposed to do. And that's not good. And I'm not just saying this because I want to be cool. I'm saying this because it's not good. Yeah. It's just, a, it was crazy. And the great opportunity of that is it was a nonstop experiment to where you could watch how guys organize themselves and how they their organization structure responded to pressure. Yeah. And you could see like, oh, well, these guys are using decentralized command and we can put all the dang pressure we have to bear short of killing every other guy. Mm-hmm and they can still function. Yep. Or these guys have over-centralized their command or there just isn't any, and I can put a fraction of pressure and then it just cracks everywhere and, and falls out. And that's cool. That, that I, I mean, again, I learned so much from the several years that I was doing that, but I could see the personality traits mm-hmm. that guys were exhibiting as they came through there and then wh- how they were organized functionally and what worked and what didn't. Yeah. And the, the other, and I t- just said a bunch of negative stuff about how much it sucked, but it was so awesome. You'd get these studs, these young seal beasts, E5s that would just be like, I'm taking this element, we're moving. And you'd be like, I love this guy. And I just, they would just be awesome. And so you'd see that all the time too, of course. Yeah. And so that was what made it so cool and yes it's the ultimate leadership laboratory to to experience from the outside from the instructor cadre perspective of we're going to put 28 platoons through this little problem Mm -hmm. it's the same problem and the only difference is and you could say there's some difference in the guys but there's really not there's actually like the the seals in the platoon they're good they're they're solid. They're fine. There's a couple knuckleheads. There's a couple great guys. There's a couple guys. There's guys in the middle, but that's not the difference. The difference is so blatantly clear. The leadership that you just get to see that over and over and over again. So it's awesome. Yeah. How long did you stay there for? Was there three years? And then what? What came next? You made Master Chief, mm-hmm. and then wrapped up your time at Tradeet, and then. Then it was time to go over to Team 5. Check. <clears throat> I went over to Team 5, and the way the progression is, you, you do a slot as the operations master chief, and then the next cycle, we're built on a two-year cycle, you would fleet up to become the command master chief. And uh, operations is just, it is a crazy job because you are responsible for every single moving part that the SEAL team does. So you're looking at what all nine platoons are doing for training. You're involved with where everybody is going to deploy. Uh, All the gear they got, all the ammo that they order, anything in between outside, you're dealing with all the other commands. Um, And then so halfway through our workup, the ISIL went and took Mosul and... uh, then deployed 
they 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 split up how the team was organized so that that kind of threw a wrench into uh, uh, how we were deploying. We had to come up with a plan to possibly deploy half of the team during unit level training. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it was busy, but then it was was a fantastic experience because you basically learn how to do everything. And then every time, so working with, with like, if someone came to me and they complained to me about our admin department, and then I would go to admin and like, hey, what, what's going on here? And then I would find out that like, well, half the blame, and sometimes all of it, lies with the guy complaining about it. <laughs> or, hey, this other unit over here, they're not doing this right. And then I just go over and talk to them and find out that, hey, they've got some issues I don't know about that we could help them out with, or we're not doing ev- everything correctly. And so I got, I took that stuff that I learned from, you know, like Danny Carroll and Steve Hines and Monty Tree Size and started to apply it outside of just a platoon level, but to a command level and a relationship level. And uh, it it worked out great. We got, we got a lot of stuff done. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm rambling a little bit, but there you have it. that 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 stuff every time there there was every time there was a complaint this isn't doing it right they suck at this i dig into it and uh, there were a couple times i didn't dig into it and then i'd wind up with egg in my face and now i just dig into everything i take what someone tells me like somebody gets in trouble over the weekend and it's like okay this is what we heard right now the first story is never the real story and then let's just, hey, we don't have to make a call now. Let's wait and let things develop and find out what the real facts are before we do something knee-jerk that we can't take back. And sometimes it winds out that it's worse, mm-hmm. and sometimes it winds out it's, then it's better. Uh, I remember one of the things I heard a general say on, on, on the deployment that I was on later on, he's, he says he's, he's not going to make a decision until he has to. They're like, hey, we want to do this. And he goes, do I need to make that decision today? No. Okay, then I'm not going to because he can let more facts come in. He can deal with more stuff, uh, which made sense. That it was General Nagata, which was the SOC sent commander when that stuff went on. And he was uh, – I've never met him personally, but he believed in real flat communications. So when he sent out an email, there would be like eight, a couple hundred people CC'd on it. Hmm. And he, because there's a tendency for people on staffs to use the the flag officer they're they're working for. They're using him like the uh, um, the Wizard of Oz, yeah. right? They're like, oh, the general just said this, yeah. and then you're like, well, I saw his email, and that's not what he said. In fact, here's. Let me forward you the email and highlight it, and everyone else will be CC'd, and no one does that. But there's, I, I've seen it happen a lot of times with other leadership who doesn't don't use flat comms, where people below them will start saying this guy says this or this guy says that, <clears throat> and start doing a little bit of manipulation to maneuver whatever their agenda is, or just th- get things going the way they want to do. But one thing I heard, you him, know, just to catch on that. Uh, don't make a decision until you have to. And there's a weird dichotomy in that because you know every, there's, there's plenty of quotes that are, are the opposite of that, which is um, you know, a good, well, like we said, the other, a good plan right now is better than a great plan 
executed tomorrow or whatever, or you know, you gotta be decisive. And the reality is there's, and, and I, I've, I say this a lot, which is if I know that we're, if we get, we get intel that there's bad guys in this building, in this town somewhere, and they're like, we want you to go hit it. That doesn't mean it's like, okay, okay, I decide right now, okay, yes, we're gonna go hit it. We load up the vehicles and we start driving and we drive there and hit it. No, we actually go, okay, well, let's let the information develop and we'll start planning. So I made a decision. The decision was to start planning. The decision is to go hit the target. And then it's like, okay, well, now it's nighttime. We have a good plan, but we're not sure. We haven't confirmed the intel. Okay, well, let's let's drive to a forward operating base and get staged, mm -hmm. right? So we've still flexed. I've decided to do that, but we haven't decided to go hit the thing, but we're still prepared to if we need to. We've moved in the right direction. And then we get you know intel that, well, we don't know, but a vehicle arrived at this person's house and we think it might be him. Okay, well, let's push to a staging point, right? We still haven't mm. decided to hit it, but we've moved in that direction. And this happens with businesses too, where there's something unfolding, a new market, right? Hey, this new market might open up. Okay, let's invest all of our money into this new market right now. No, that's not a good move. Yeah. What you do is, okay, let's, let's find out, let's, let's invest a little bit of money and find out how big that market really is. Okay, cool, we do a little study. Oh, it turns out that that market does look pretty big. Okay, let's do a little research and see what it would take for us to push into that market. Okay, cool. And so you're moving in the right direction, but you're not just jumping in with this decisiveness to say, okay, I've seen all I need to see. I've decided that we're just gonna go all in right now. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Sometimes there's other times where it's like, guess what? We're standing in a hallway or we're standing in the street and we're getting shot at. We're going to get into a building. That's what we're going to do. Like there's no, we're, we're not going to think about, we're not going to move towards the building. No, we're going in the building because right now out here, we're going to die. So yes, be decisive in those situations. Be decisive when you have to be decisive. But if you don't have to make a decision, the big decision right now, and you can make a series of smaller decisions, iterative decisions that move you towards what you think decision you will have to make, then go that route. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you guys deploy to, and this is when you guys uh, get into Mosul. No. Not That's yet. a following deployment. Okay. This, so what'd you guys do on this deployment? I I went to the 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 command split up. So the um, CO and the the command master chief were up in Iraq, and then uh, I was at an, another spot, non disclosed location Check. on a, a crisis response element with the uh, XO. And that was a, that was six months. That was six. Well, we did five months because at the time they said you have to be front door to front door in six months and because you can't predict the airflow, we did a five and a half month um, deployment. And and then that was a big eye opener too because we uh, on that deployment I start, I was going to an embassy once a week. Uh, How'd the boys handle it? I mean just. They, they, they did good. We had, uh, um, we had guys kind of spread out in different mm -hmm. spots. And uh, there was a big operation that went on um, there that one of the National Mission Force did, and, and uh, our guys participated in it. And it was it was a good like shooting deal. Uh, nothing happened up in Iraq. I think it was frustrating for them. Um, and then then 
by the nature of how everything was, there was a really slow strike process. So when our guys could see like a vehicle born IED driving towards Iraqi counterparts to blow them up, it would take 20 minutes to get clearance to drop a bomb on Mm. it. And and only fifteen minutes to drive there, and, and like five minutes to drive okay. there. So you, they just watch it happen live on TV, and they're like, ah. So that that aspect of it was frustrating, and and there wasn't wasn't a real clear decision made on what was going to happen at that point. So there wasn't it was I don't know the guys up there didn't do much but just spin, spin and spin and spin, which is is really difficult. Yeah. Like hey, get ready. Oh, never mind. Hey, get ready. Oh, never mind. <laughs> And uh, um, yeah, that that was uh, that was good. So it was a good deployment overall. It was a good experience for me to kind of like because I was the senior enlisted guy where I was at, and so oh, yeah. that was great. And uh, um, came back from that, and we did our change of command, and then I fleeted up to be the command master chief. And you don't really know who you're going to get paired up with when you're in that leadership role because there's a, a commanding officer and a commanding master chief. And as it happened, I got paired up with a guy that was just awesome and I'd known forever. And the two of us are a, a lot alike personality-wise, which we realize, you know, like we, we went to a couple of leadership seminars and they're like, you guys are almost the same person. So, hey, here's what you're going to have to watch out for because both of you are really blunt. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, I, I really won the lottery. It was a, it was a real pleasure working for him. Um, he was a fantastic leader and what he did really well specifically was he communicated a lot. So he's, he'd always speaking with his his XO, his ops officer, and myself, and then the task unit commanders. He spoke with the, all once a week. He would have a meeting with them once a week, you know, and he was all all the way down to the platoon OIC, and he did it in a manner where he wasn't stepping on other people's toes. And there was never any, there was never any any guessing on where he was coming from or what he expected. And everybody knew that he cared about them was was his, his first priority. And then the mission came after that, so that was really good. But hey, you know what? If you if you if you messed up, he'd hold you accountable. He'd he he'd give give you a written counseling and he did that for some of his guys who just did some shady stuff and they're good dudes. And he's like, Okay, well hey, you know, hopefully this stops here and did does a written counseling so so that was good but uh yeah again it's the same message that we talked about on the last podcast which is just knowing where you stand absolutely having predictability and no when when you know a guy's got a reputation like oh if you step out of line you're gonna get formal written counseling that tightens people up immediately whereas if you think oh this guy's kind of a pushover guess what you do you cause more trouble and you cause more problems you, you, yeah, you really do, and it, and it was like it, there was always an escalation with it, but it was it was straightforward, and then everybody always understood like, hey, I'm I'm not mad at you. These are just the standards we have here, and you did this. Here's the consequences of that. You know, I, I we need you to fix yourself. I'm rooting for you to fix yourself. I'm not mad at you, and then let's just move forward from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
got back from that deployment and then I got back in February. You started this podcast in December. Iris had started listening to it. And then, like I said, podcast six is when I started listening to it. And then I was caught up within a week because I was able to do it with my, my longer commute. And then just you talk about, I wish I had this. I, I had the luxury of having this when I was in a really important leadership position threefold as a husband, as a father, and as a seal, right? And those, it, and the, the priorities are almost always the same, or it's weighted heavily husband, father, seal. And so all the stuff that, that, that is discussed here through all these lessons from these books and all that, it, it can take and apply to every stinking aspect of my life. And I did it. And like the hardest thing for me was to, to really get introspective and honest with myself about what my shortfalls were and it's not something that you can do overnight it's not like i can get a shot and get inoculated it's something that is water tortured in and then i just growing so much from it and like i'm gonna you know the the like starting with the the dang sea of machetes Season of the Machete, Machete right? season. That was like the first really dark podcast. And I was driving. I was wincing listening to that. I'm like, why did he do that to me? Um, <laughs> but then I appreciated how good I had it, right? Then, 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 and so now as those, those podcasts are so dang necessary to understand how evil I could be, because I, I, could, I could completely go down any of those roads, and then once you understand that that's in your heart, you can control it, but then you can appreciate how good you have it. And, and, and you've got that, like the, the, um, the episode that you did on uh, the Miley Massacre. Mm. I had to pull my car over because I was crying, because I was so ashamed that this, this is, or like, I was just like, can't this story be about somebody else and not Americans? And then, um, Later on, when when I when guys make chief, and I talk to you about this, I'm like, hey, when my guys make chief, we have, we have to put them through all this training. A lot of the training I don't think is good. One of the things I did for them is like, hey, we're going to listen to these three podcasts, and my lay was one of them. The other one was uh, um, Steal My Soldiers' Hearts, which was an awesome podcast and awesome lessons, and they're all awesome lessons. But it was all good because the guys listened to it, and we'd have discussions. And then you know you came in and, and uh, we VTC'd and talked to them, and that was such good stuff. But going down that road and then being in all these different situations at the executive level levels of leaderships in the SEAL teams, and I could see in real time, I'm like, oh, okay, this is uh, this is ah uh, uh, yeah, my face is getting flushed and I'm a little emotionally attached to this idea. And my 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 fists are clenched. What did he say? He told me to breathe. <sighs> All right. And then I come back and like, oh, or someone said something and I disagree with them. And I just ran headlong into, you know, a pillbox. I'm like, that did not work out well. Maybe I can learn to finesse it. And then it worked out great because our, I think we did, the feedback I've gotten anyway is that we did really good at the team and we dealt well with a lot of other people. Uh, and, and so that is, is a huge degree for myself 
was having the podcast to learn these things and miss military history and then being able just to be introspective and improve on uh on my life as a whole and then having these discussions with my because she listens to the podcast all the time and we discuss it and it's just been good for for us across the board um you know when we deployed on that deployment, and that's during the deployment when we did the, uh, the the clearance in the Mosul, we had one platoon that went to an area and they were working under um, the conventional Marine. Every, well, it was all, we were all working for the conventionals. The conventional forces in Iraq in 2016, 17, they were the main effort we were in support of. And then our guys went to a location where they inherited a pretty toxic relationship and they took some of the lessons that you talked about and they went in there humble. They said, Hey, how can we help? What can we do? Oh, Hey, when are your, when do you have, when are your normal battle rhythm meetings? We want to send a representative there. So we make sure we're doing everything right. And we're getting the word and all that. And they really leaned into it. They turned that relationship around in a matter of a month completely around and and then they were in an area of, of iraq out west that was not there wasn't a lot going on out there at the time but that colonel was so impressed with them and liked them he bent over backwards to make sure that he could get them outside the wire so that they could get after it and we were able to get them outside the wire and at the end of deployment, all five of our platoons had been in combat. They were the last ones, the fifth platoon that hadn't, and then they got the opportunity to really mix it up on two operations. And it was 100% because of that, that colonel liked them as people and trusted them and wanted to see them do well. He wanted to celebrate it. And when people don't like you, they want to see, they'll walk across the street to see you get screwed over. Relationships are stronger than the chain of command. Absolutely. And they, they had written in there. I love this because I copied this on their on their whiteboard in their 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 joint opera, their jock. They had at the top in all caps relationships equal mission success. So when one of their E5s went over and talked to a Marine Corps E5, they were really cool with them. They didn't manage their own security like the Marines did security around their camp. They would bring dinner out to the guys that were standing watch at night. Just like it, it was, it was awesome. And then everybody, there was a, you know, a real, a real sense of teamwork and stuff out there. Um, so that that was good. And that that was, but you guys uh, did some real tough fighting inside of Mosul. Yeah. Now our our platoons that were up north, um, you know, when they kicked off the liberation of Mosul, which was the biggest military operation since the invasion of Iraq. And there were, I believe, three different main lines of approach going towards the city, and ISIS pretty much controlled everything on the outside. Guys, the first couple days of that, there were semi-trucks that were loaded with explosives, vehicle-borne IEDs that was a semi. Like, I don't think, you know, outside of the Moab, we don't have a bomb that's carrying that much stuff coming at them. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, uh, EOD Chief Finan was killed um, on the first couple days. 
when uh, our guys uh, had gotten into an area, they were they were partnered up with the 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 Peshmerga, which are the uh, who are the guys that Kurd not Kurds yeah Kurds. yeah so they're partnered up with them and they were pressing into an area and they got into an area that was just too laden with IEDs and they were having to back up their uh, their Mat V the truck they were driving in and. Jason had the door open so he could make sure that he was in the same tire tracks of that he'd just driven over. Unfortunately, they'd driven over a crush plate once it crushed it halfway. Mm. They hit the rest of the crush plate and uh, it was a daisy change of explosives. It went off. He ate you know, a bunch of it hit him right in the face. It was a fairly horrible experience for our guys that were there because he was still breathing. Biologically, he was alive for like the hour that they were with him before they could finally get a medevac to him that was too hot. The medevac wouldn't come in. So they had to offload him off the truck, get him in the back of a pickup truck, and then drive through all this heavy fire and a lot more IEDs to get him on... on, uh, on board uh, the medevac, and then you know, then he expired. And uh, it it it's the worst case scenario, period. And it's something that we drilled. We we started drilling. We call it a Keiko drill for when you lose a guy back on the strand. And we would do full blown drills. Like, okay, here's what we need to do. Um, to, to cover down on that so that we're ready. And, and I'm a little bit superstitious. I think if we practice to do something a whole bunch of times, it's not going to happen. And then it happened, but luckily it's something that we, it's not lucky that it happened, but it's something that we drilled. And more so we had like a book because there's an incredible amount of emotion and everybody wants, everyone gets excited. They all want to do stuff. And so there it's, sometimes you can do there's too much that you can do and you can confuse a situation so we we just opened it we had the Keiko book we opened it up and like our admin guy is like hey what's step one and he goes down he goes all right we need to do this what's step two we need to do this there's no way we would have remembered that Mm -hmm. we went through it went through the steps one of the things that that I was pretty adamant about is because I, I had a good idea, although I haven't experienced it directly, about what my guys had gone through that were there with him. Um, and I wanted to get a a psych out to just help them unpack some of the stuff they went through b- before the end of deployment. So he could do two things. He could get out there and help them unpack what they were you know, what they went through, and then he built up some rapport. So at the end of deployment on the, the, the next stop, they had some rapport with them. So the, the group sent, sent the guy out. Now, this is like three weeks after this happened because the best thing to do is to do something. And the guy stayed busy because there was a freaking war to fight. But then when stuff tapered down for them mm-hmm. and now like, oh, there's downtime, hey, guess what? The psych's coming out and he's going to hang out there. And 
you don't need to speak with him, but he's available. And typically, he, he, you know, he'll get out there, he puts a thing up, hey, you want to speak with, no one signs it. But then he's just there, yeah. and at lunchtime, a guy hits him up, and then later on, another guy hits him up. And, yeah, and the guys went through, and there was, there was heavy fighting up until the day that, that we redeployed. Like Team 7 basically came in and were doing turnover ops and going out and doing stuff there in Mosul. We had just, there was a little bit of a lull when Eastern Mosul was finally cleared, and then there was a big reassessment on moving over to the other side of the, uh, the river. But uh, um, it, it, was, it was busy, and it was uh, was pretty good. I mean, we had a couple of vehicle-borne IEDs that got within a hundred yards of our guys before they were able to kill them. With and then the, the the drivers got like a kill switch on him, so when he dies, it gets released. Yeah. It gets released and detonates, and there there was no shortage of. I think there was at least like seven or eight of these things coming at us a day, and then they'd they'd been prepping for months, so they were laid in all across Mosul. There was a garage underground that had a V-bit in it, and so as the front line moved closer, all of a sudden this car would just drive out and drive right into the Iraqis and blow them up, and there's no time to uh, hit it with a hellfire or, uh, or, or stop it or whatever, and they... They had them coming pretty quick. Yeah, you know, uh, going back to the the casualty plan, it's it. You were giving me a, well, it's a hard time, but you were harassing me, saying like, "When are you going to write your protocol book?" Because I talk about you know how you got to have protocol for certain situations that are right. like you said, things that are real emotional, things that are moving real quick things that you know you're you need to be thinking about but you won't be able to think clearly about when they're actually going on and that's what you're talking about you know you guys put together a protocol to follow and the navy has one and the teams have one but you know you got to look at it and actually understand what it means you can't just open up a book that you've never looked at before so but but that protocol idea for for your life is definitely a powerful thing whether especially for things that are going to be emotional and and rough to go through. If you have a good protocol, commence the protocol. Step one, and and you also talked about the guys continuing to be busy, and that's absolutely true. If you're going to sit around and well, if you're going to sit around, you're just going to think about the the horrible event you just went through, and that's not going to go well because you're not ready to deal with it. So get back to work, work, let it settle a little bit, and then you'll you know you'll you have to deal with it later. But you do have to deal with it at some point. Yeah. I know that like one of the times that I got to go out to the to the uh, to the to basically the flot with our guys who were going advising assist and they would be about three blocks back or four blocks back from the front lines. Um, the civilians that lived in Mosul would just move away from where the fighting was and then just kind of mingle around just outside of it and then go back to their houses. 
So we were at this this one location where the, the guys were providing support to the Iraqi CTS, and we had snipers up on rooftops. We were able to see all the way to the front lines and take shots, and then we were also using mortars pretty heavily. We got some 81s in that are just friggin' awesome. So two things are so one thing and another story right after this so there's all these civilians around which is a little nerve-wracking because who's who right and there are a bunch of kids there were some kids right next living in the building next to uh with their families next to where our trucks were parked and uh they were really nice kids and they spoke pretty clear english and they wanted candy and stuff so we were chatting with them a little bit and and messing around and then so we were there all day and then in the evening a bunch more kids came out there was a whole group of kids and i don't know if they just come in the area or it was the evening and they just wanted to come out and play and so there's we were in this area where there weren't a lot of buildings so we were right in the middle of this big field so you know we could see anything coming and the kids were all playing and then a salvo of 120s came in and so 120 millimeter more boom boom and they basically kind of bracketed us but then where uh, where one of them landed was right where those stinking those poor kids were and i looked over there and i i saw like this beautiful little girl hopping away in the smoke and she's missing a leg and then I I saw a guy run out and snatch up a little body and he's just wailing I thought you know I thought about my kids at home and what those people are going through and how awful it must be and how we just got to redouble our efforts to stop this freaking crap that was going on with ISIL because it is just so unsat because little kids are little kids are little kids, uh, you know, wherever they're from or what, you know, and to see innocence shattered like that whew, was rough. But that's that's part about, you know, knowing the darkness and what does that do? That makes me appreciate my kids more. And then never pass up an opportunity to hug them or tell them I love them or anything like that. Yeah, and that, those, those kind of stories right there, um, you know, I, I, I pretty regularly have to explain to people that there are evil human beings in the world that there those those people that drop those mortars they don't care about those kids at all and i heard other stories from guys coming back from mosul after you were there where one of the biggest risks that was going on was the e, the guys doing the eod job well what does the eod guy do he dismantles bombs well they do that in the lowest possible risk way that they can, which often means if we find, or if they find an IED of some kind, what do they do? They just blow it up in place. They send a rob robot over there and detonate the thing and just blow it up. And that makes your job a lot less risky. Well, what was happening over there, it was 
suicide there was suicide bombers okay so what do you do with a suicide bomber well what you do with a suicide bomber that comes up that's wearing a, a suicide vest you shoot them and you kill them and that makes your job pretty easy because then you can then once you got a dead person with a bomb on their chest you can send a robot over there and blow up the bomb well what happened and what the some of these stories i got told was that these isis was putting these suicide vests on little kids Ugh. And so you can't shoot the little kid and you don't want the little kid to get detonated. And it was one of the riskiest things that they had to do. And, you know, that's, and again, that's what, that's the kind of thing that, that you know, there's, there's a, like, there's a lot, of, I'm not saying America is a perfect place, because it, it is not, but that kind of, when you hear a story like that, and you know that there's a some random EOD guy with a wife and kids at home and whatever else he's got going on, and he puts all that on the line to, to try and help some little Iraqi kid from getting blown up, that's say what you want about America, but that right there is America. We went out to the, to the, well, I, I, the guys were going out to the flood every day. I got an opportunity to go out with them another time when they were right on the edge of, of Mosul going into it. And the, the building that they were occupying, um, was a school. And one thing I noticed as I was walking through the buildings of the school, is that on the walls of the school, like, okay, inside the classrooms had all the Disney princesses, Dora the Explorer, all the stuff that our kids enjoy. There, So it's twofold. There's a, there's, there's a thought like, oh, our Western culture and lifestyle is gonna get overrun, negative. Because Western culture on the whole, while you said it's not perfect, it's still the best thing going, and it is completely contagious. And even over there in Iraq, in an, a school that was controlled by ISIL, their little kids are looking at the Disney princesses and Dora the Explorer and, you know, that stuff, Western things, because it's good, it's appealing. Yeah. And that, that, gave, me, that gave me a tremendous amount of hope. Yeah, they, that, that's in, in uh, just our culture and way of life moving uh, forward. That's the whole idea of months ago when I had said that, oh, you want to solve the problem in North Korea? Give those people iPhones so they can yeah. start watching YouTube. Because <laughs> <laughs> you watch a couple of YouTube videos and you look around at your, you know, barren neighborhood where you're eating like. Uh, uh, water with salt in it is your dinner and you watch a YouTube video of people eating steaks and McDonald's and Subway and you think to yourself the something's not right here yeah. and it's not going to take real long before those people say look we're doing this wrong and I don't, you probably heard that story about Gorbachev when Gorbachev came to America uh -huh. and went in have you heard the story no Gorbachev came to America from the Soviet Union and he went into like a of Vons or whatever supermarket he went into and he went into the cereal aisle uh -huh. and saw that there was 390 different kinds of cereal in there and he realized that 
they needed to stop what they were doing because you know how many different types of cereal there was in the Soviet Union? One. You know, that's it. And when you try and control everything, it doesn't work. And and actually, I remember you calling me up one day. You're like, "Hey, this." He's like, "I was listening to this podcast. This applies to everything because, like, it's the same with government." I'm like, "Yes, it is. You yeah. can't control everything. If one person tries to make all the decisions, it doesn't work." I was actually going to read this Thomas Sowell chunk from when I when I last time I had Jordan Peterson on because he lays out this thing about how the government with the the government trying to control the pricing of some kind of pelt, some kind of pelt, and, and if the government raises the prices, every hunter goes and, buy, go, goes and gets all these pelts and then turns them into the government. And then the government, what do they have now? An excess of pelts. And so now what do they do with them all? They don't do anything because there's nothing to do with them because they, 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 don't have, they, don't, they aren't needed. Yeah. And this whole cycle unfolds where things just don't work with centralized command. Yeah, And things like Dora the Explorer mm-hmm. and the Disney princesses and Thomas the Tank Engine and all these Mikey and the Dragons, these yeah. things are going to spread. And those evil bastards, what do they do to try and stop it? You know, what do they do? They try and control anything, any, any form of freedom, and especially freedom of speech, you know, controlling the internet, all those things. And it's disturbing to see. But I believe that like in Jurassic Park, Echo, movie reference. My dad was give, in that movie, Give me a credit. Way. Was he really? Yeah. He's like one of the first guys to appear on the screen. He just walks past. He's an extra. Still, still. <laughs> still that's there. something. Yeah. Yeah. In that movie, I think the line is, life will find a way, right? Yep. Like, life will find a way? Yes. That's what happens. That's what happens. I think so. You know, with all these... Um, these these folks will remember those folks in Mosul. They'll remember that. They'll remember who gave them freedom. And by the way, it was Iraqi troops, which was amazing to hear. Mm-hmm. The Iraqi troops fighting hard and sacrificing because in Ramadi it was pretty rough to get the Iraqi troops to take lead. And when they would take lead, the insurgents would be waiting for them and would b- deal heavy blows to those guys. And it was a nightmare to watch. But. It's it's awesome that they stepped up and they did the house to house clearance. Were they heavily supported by coalition forces, by Americans and firepower and all that? Yeah, but guess what? I mean, how how many people did they lose? Uh, at one point, we thought we were going to lose our entire partner force. When they first kicked it off, they were losing <laughs> they were losing fifteen to twenty guys a day. And, and we did the math. We're like, at this rate, and it was because our, our strike process was really slow and it hadn't gotten decentralized yet. That was fixed later. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're like, okay, at this rate, in three weeks, these guys, we're gonna, our entire partner force is going to be gone. Yeah. And what's really impressive is that we lost a battalion in Ramadi. <laughs> that they deserted. And they had shown up. They did a couple operations, they took some casualties, and they left. And so for, for those guys, when you were in, in Mosul, to take massive casualties and stick it out, that shows you that how much, how, that's just leaps and it's, it's, it's incomparable to it what was it was their, like before. It was their CT, their counterterrorism unit, which is their like premier, yeah. basically tier one. Yeah. They were all really, really good to go, dialed in. 
and it, and it was just the fighting was so brutal they were losing guys heavily yeah and the other funny thing somebody put this on social media the other day and it was like Jocko Willink predicts the future or something like that because I was with, on with Joe Rogan and Joe Rogan's like you know what do you do about these ISIS guys and how could you ever defeat them and I was like if you gave the ISIS problem to like a Marine Corps second lieutenant and said like, hey, figure out a plan on how to beat these guys, they could do it. It's like, there's a bunch mm-hmm. of bad guys, surround them and move through and kill them all. That's what we're gonna do. And he's like, yeah, that actually did happen. And and that is what happened. Yeah. And it was, a, it was beautiful. And the amount of attrition that took place was awesome. Yeah. And for those people that think that you can't kill an idea, they're wrong. <laughs> You, you know, and then there was some of the stuff where ISIL had gotten so hysterical with some. There was a video. They, there was one of those, you know, they do those horrible videos. Yeah. And it was something happened over in Syria, and they released a video where they, you know, they killed like nine guys, but they were from the local area. And, and then I guess the tribe was like, hey, can we have the bodies back of our guys you just killed? And they're like, no. So the next day, a suicide bomber walks into the ISIL headquarters in that area from that tribe, which the way the tribalism works, they're willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And boom, clacked off, killed like 30 people. They just, you know, and and I think there's one or two people that are kind of hardwired maybe to do that out of a thousand. And they they have to do these videos and, and force people Totally. To do that stuff because it's not in their nature. It another, certainly isn't in mine. Another, that's another big misconception is like, oh, they're just willing to die. No, they're getting coerced and forced into those situations. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what's actually happening. Like you said, sure, is there one out of a thousand that's like so brainwashed that they're like, yes, I'm going to go be a martyr? Sure, there is some of those. But most of them are, hey, if you don't do this, we're going to kill your whole family. So which one do you want? <clears throat> and the guys go, yeah, okay, go ahead, kill it, my whole family. And I'm talking about the situation too where they've got they got like a guy strapped to a post with the thing on and then they tell someone go stab him and the guy no one wants to do that you know like they're they were doing what the japanese were doing in world war ii oh okay i see what you're saying hey go hack off some heads for training today go kill some poor chinese farmer yeah go and no one wants to do most people don't want to do that and that's like in in their situation too a lot of those people are like i don't want anything to do with this no yeah. Well, you got to do it, or the result is we're going to kill your family, and then they just get into a situation where they're doing it, and it's not good. Anyhow, on a positive note, <laughs> like on that deployment, I cleaned my dang diet up as a result of you know Peter Atia being on this podcast, and and now I'm listening to Peter Atia's podcast and keeping smart on my health and. Started doing, uh, basically, I did pretty strict keto. There was a, a couple weeks where I ate nothing but eggs and sardines. And, man, that is boring. <laughs> oh, but uh, I felt I found, you know, my inflammation went away. I dropped pounds, and I was getting in good shape. And then I started experimenting with the intermittent fasting, which is something that I'm still doing now. Mm-hmm. And that was... That's good stuff. Did you start that uh, during deployment, before uh, deployment? On the deployment, on deployment, I'm like, hey, okay, I'm going to quit eating sugar. Because you, you'd mentioned sugar's bad for you, and I never really paid attention to it because <laughs> yeah, I, I like mentioned it before. sugar <laughs> is bad. And then I'm like, uh, okay, 
I, I'm like, I, hey, I'm going to stop eating sugar. And I was eating big salads and stuff like that. And, and, and there was a guy that I was deployed with that's really smart on this stuff. And, and he's like, well, hey, if you are if you stopped eating sugar, then you need to eat, quit eating that yogurt you, and that milk's got a lot of sugar in it. And guess what? That fruit has got a lot of sugar in it. So, man, then I started looking at labels, getting smart, picked up a book, read it on basically, you know, how I eat now is 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 roundabout a paleo thing. Mm-hmm. Like I try to avoid grains and carbohydrates and stuff that's processed. <laughs> um, I'm laughing because the other day you're like, you know, I mean, you're like, yeah, you know, I'm stay, I stay that way. But then you're like, but if I go to someone's house and they say like, hey, do you want to, you know, do you want a piece of bread or whatever? Yeah, I eat it. Yeah, because because there's a, so there's another aspect to that. <laughs> I don't want to be the vegan guy who is like, hey, you know what? I'm better than you because I'm a vegan. So I'm on the I'm better than you diet. Yeah. And so it's like really uncool if someone offers you food to say no. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's where that's something I weigh out. If it's like, oh, okay, I go over to your house and we're having pieces of dinner. That's what I'm going to eat. Because I can afford to eat a piece of pizza or You're not going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, th- and then you just got to watch out for the slippery slope. Oh, because, yeah. Because it is, I say no to bread all the time. Uh-huh. You know, no, I'm good. Um, and then, like you said, if it's someone, hey, if it's, a, if it's a situation that unfolds where it's like, oh, I'm going to look like. I'm going to be bringing attention to myself is really what Mm -hmm. it boils down to. I'm going to make everyone talk to me about me and my little thing. It's like, no, I'm not that important. (laughs) I'm just some dude who like is weird. (laughs) So I'm not going to make a big thing out of that. Yeah. (laughs) And bread's handy. I mean, you can eat some meat without getting your fingers all dirty. Yeah. No, it's, it is, it is handy. And the, the lettuce wraps, while good in theory, and it, actually, have you had someone make a, a burger? I had one the other day. It was an iceberg. They, I said I asked for like lettuce on the burger, mm-hmm. and it was iceberg lettuce, mm-hmm. cut in like basically in half. So it was big, two big giant chunks, and it worked really well. Oh, that's I was, great. I was pretty because normally it's like, oh, they give you that one big piece of lettuce that's all wilted by the time it gets you. You can't pick that thing up; it's not happening. You actually got to use a fork and knife to eat a burger, which in its own right is kind of st- disturbing. Right? Yes. If we're yep. eating burgers and we're using a fork and knife, we don't respect that. I mean, that's just not something that we're doing. But all of a sudden, no. we are if we got wilted lettuce on the situation. <laughs> Check. And so you started, so you cleaned up your diet. What did you weigh when you went on deployment? 193 pounds, and I'm five foot six. <laughs> and then what did you weigh when you got home? Uh, I think I was 165. How did you feel mentally? Way better. Yeah. Way, and, 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 and Doc I, Parsley had already cleaned up your, your my sleep, sleep habits. Yeah. So you were basically getting on step. Right. As, as I've been, I've been on step probably yeah. for two years and, and you know, it's sleeps like anything else. It just got to be disciplined with it. I'm, I don't get up at four 30 in the morning. I get up around five 30 or six, but I'm really careful that, that like, you know, the lights are all out. Cause for me, even stupid little lights will wake me up mm-hmm. and, and it's quiet and all that. And then I got, I got one of those weighted blankets, which is pretty cool. Do you, you must have told my wife about that, or Iris did, because we both we have a weighted blanket <laughs> now too. It's not on my side of the bed; it's just on her side of the bed. 
Yeah, they're not cool in the summertime because they're too hot. Oh, yeah, But, yeah. man, I just go to sleep and sleep. I don't wake up at all <laughs> till, the, till the next morning. You know, like normally you wake up a couple times during the night, and I think you just get under there and you feel all safe, and you're like, oh, <laughs> feel like I'm in the womb. Done. You're all, you got the weighted blanket. You got the CPAP machine. You're yeah. just keeping it real. Yeah. One of our mutual friends that has a CPAP machine and his wife was like, you know, when you when your mask comes off, do you, you know I'm trying to wake you up so you can put it back on. And he's like, don't you know? Don't just leave me alone. And she's like, well, what if your mask comes off and then you stop breathing? And he's like, well, just let me die. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's good. So you come home from that deployment. Yeah. And then what'd you do when you got back? Did you? I went over to trade at to and became again. the command master chief there. And then started, you know, preparing to make, making sure all the fundamentals that you'd stayed in place were still there and they were still there. The guys were just really hard and doing a good job. And then, uh, and that was it. Overrunning unit level training and and seeing that, and then uh, working myself out of a job, mm-hmm. getting the 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 guy that's my replacement set up to take my job. And 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 here's the deal: like as I leave Naval Special Warfare, they are so good to go. Mm-hmm. And I see the younger guys now that are coming up at every level. The people like to complain about the millennials, and I, I really don't see any issue with them because they're doing good. And, it, and and when I measure myself against who they are when I was their age, they're way better. I'm yeah, like, yeah. oh, my goodness. <laughs> Biggest problem I have with millennials right now is I look at them, and I'm like, how are you so much bigger and stronger and smarter than I ever was when I was 22? Come yeah. on. I told you this the other day. I, I roll in here, and I hear some like guys training over on like another mat. And I, I look <clears> over there, and they're clearly young frogmen. And there's six of them, and they're all dripping with sweat because they've been getting after it hard. And they all look like they're yoked and just ready to go start just killing people. And I'm like, "What's up, fellas?" And yeah. Like. We're getting ready to go to land warfare. I said, legit. I was <laughs> just so happy. Yeah. And it just, yeah, you're you're right. These guys in in the teams right now and in the military at large. If you're going in the military, you're doing it for a reason. You know. Yep. When you and I joined, there wasn't no war going on. We were hoping there would be, but you're going in now. Like you know what's up. You know what you're doing. You know what you're stepping into. And now, retirement. You good mm-hmm. to go? I think so. I'm really excited. 30 years is a long enough time to where I'm like, oh, I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah my the locker. hardest part is that, like, I'm glad that you're going with the feeling like, hey, things are good to go. Yeah. Because the hardest part is you start thinking that you, like, that you are so critical. Mm-hmm. And now, like, oh, what? And it's like, no, there's 10 guys that are just as good as me, better than me. And they're all going to get in there and they're going to do a better job than I could have ever done. And and then the other thing is like when you hear some rumor or whatever about something going sideways and you get you get all freaked out because you want to be like back where you can help and you got guys going on deployment like if something it just like that you have to you, it's just hard to let go and I mean I'm not yeah. saying you're gonna be able to let it go but it's it's hard to not just think about it the same all the time like. It's hard to it's hard to come to grips with the fact 
then you're not in the teams anymore. That's all it is. Yeah. And then that's what that's I mean, I'm super appreciative that I'm getting to work with Echelon Front because the work that the best thing about being in the teams is the peer group. Yeah. And so I'm trading right into the same peer yeah. group yeah. of just a bunch of awesome people <laughs> and then getting to go and and I really enjoyed like a third of my career was at CL Team 5, the, the other third of it was at Trade at. And I really, really enjoy working with people, um, teaching, passing stuff on, learning. I'm always learning. And uh, that's, I'm, I'm super excited about it. Yeah. It's, like I said, once you get over the fact, and um, I'll give you a little heads up. Have you cleaned out your locker yet? It's, it's like, 80% done. Okay, yeah. That last 20% sucks. Yeah. That's the worst part. For me, loading that stuff into my van and knowing and then your your car, your access card doesn't work anymore. It's just mm-hmm. like game over and you just drive <laughs> out and you know, especially for guys like you and me and you know, you even 10 I mean, I was in for 20 years, you were in for 30, but I mean, how many memories do you have? at the SEAL Team 1 grinder, at the SEAL Team 3 grinder, at the trade at building. It's like my whole life is right there. And you, you know, when you're leaving, you're just, it's, it's good. <laughs> it yeah, sucks. it's gonna be, it's scary. Because <laughs> all those memories are there, but man, they're good memories. And I know that if I pick up the phone, guys will answer. And uh, yeah, you know, when, uh, when Fackety died, like Mm -hmm. um, last year and I was like what I felt like all that yeah I I just felt like all that memory all that memory that he had of us is gone like that he had of me and all my little running mates that I used to run around with we were all team one guys and we were all and like he had these images of us and knew us when we were little kids and kept us out of trouble and all that stuff. And I'm thinking all those things, which he had a perspective that only he could have. Like, I was like, oh, those are all gone. And that was was a crappy feeling of just, damn, why does that have to go? And I never got him on the podcast either, which is a freaking shame. Yeah. Um, But the good thing is, like you said, um, we're still all just kicking it. Yeah. And I mean, really, it's like just this, <clears throat> Naval Special Warfare, or any organization or team, we're just in that for that little time. And then it's shaped us way more than we shaped it. We had our influence, and it'll just keep on going. And that's what, that's like, there's a piece of, piece of us that's never, ever, ever going to die. Yep. As long as this country's around or there are guys doing frogman stuff, there'll be a little piece that it gave us and we gave it they're moving forward. Yep. Yep. That's good to go. It's about as good as it gets. About as good yep. as it gets. I think that's probably a good spot. And we might both be retired, Echo Charles, but we're not done yet. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're just getting warmed up. Plenty of fighting, albeit in a different way, sure. that is left to do, and we're going to do it. You got any suggestions on how we can stay in the fight? Stay in the fight and on the path, big time. Yeah. Okay, first thing, jujitsu, right? A little bit more direct relationship to the expression fight, jujitsu. If you're not doing it, do it. 
for many benefits that we always talk about. I'm not going to go too deep into it. I wanted to because I was thinking about it. You know, some people don't call a jiu-jitsu match or jiu-jitsu training. Or they, what, they don't call it Some people do, some people yeah. don't. So this is what I kind of discovered or realized that if other types of fighters or, or martial arts practitioners, they tend to not call jiu-jitsu a fight. You know, like, oh, no, it's not a fight. You know, mm-hmm. you're, it's a match or it's a whatever. And then you have the totalitarian kind of <laughs> attitude, which is like, hey, anything that you're struggling against another person or another true, force, true. it's a fight. Even for you going to the grocery store and looking for a certain kind of it can be a fight. spaghetti sauce yes, is a fight. Yes, it's a struggle. So, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, especially when I'm doing it for somebody else. It's another element. Nonetheless, so that's the way I look at is, it. If you and I roll yes. and we go hard, yes. is that a fight? That's a fight for you, uh, huh? Well, okay. so because I look at it in that way. Anything mm. that I'm struggling against another person or force, or in your case, another person and force, <laughs> it's a fight. So that, you know, with you, that's, a, that's essentially Check. a good example. Check. Unless fighting all-out war, total war. Total war. Total war. It's good to exercise that in our that, lives. That whole book psychology for the fighting man it's just so good but just starting off with total war and you start to view your life through the aspect of just total war yeah oh because now we're taking it to the next level this this workout i'm going to be total war yeah this person that's trying to get somebody somebody hit me up on uh social media today said said he was getting emotionally blackmailed Okay. He said, what would you do? And I was like, I'm not getting emotionally black, blackmailed. No factor. <laughs> Stifle your emotions. Yeah, I was going to say, well, you're not because, well, you, it's like, I don't even know you don't even means, have emotions. But. So how can you blackmail yourself? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, but it makes sense, though. I don't know, though, because what? Emotions sometimes can be more, you know, more of a thing. Well, yeah, yeah. For certain yeah. people, you know, that's yeah. kind of everything. Yeah, for sure. Unless you, if you have no emotions, well, then you're gonna have real problems. Yeah, it's like me but trying to. You block. can learn, but you should learn to control your emotions. And one thing that can help you learn to control your emotions is jujitsu. Jujitsu, <laughs> because it's an exercise in prepping for all-out war in life. Very good, direct. Anyway, when we're doing jujitsu, we need a gi and rash guards. That's essentially the uniform uniforms. Yeah, for the jujitsu, and you get that at. The best ones, anyway, at Origin. OriginMaine.com, that's where you get it. It is in Farmington, Maine, all made in America. Yeah. Which is not a small deal. Not a small deal at all. You can say, oh, whatever. No, it's it's a big deal. And what's awesome about speaking of America is going up to Farmington, Maine and seeing a factory with 40 people working in it, craftsmen making stuff here. Bringing back a town, right? Yeah. Bringing back an industry. Yeah, that's what we're doing here. Movement check. Yep, geese, rash guards, guards, other uh, clothes, joggers, athletic gear. Apparently, jeans. From what I hear. Yeah, yeah. You don't know about those yet. American denim. And then we got supplements. Yeah. Jason Gardner, talk to me about origin jocko supplements coming at you live yeah i am on the uh joint warfare two in the morning two at night krill oil every morning 
and uh, I am on the Molk train. <laughs> I am on the Molk train. You know, when I get when I want to have some dessert, and I'm like, ah, eh, you know what? Almond milk, and then a scoop of the uh, mint chip Ooh, milk. Hit that yeah. with a stick blender. It satiates me. And then every morning, my coffee, I got a scoop of the vanilla milk. Actually, now that you know the you know the uh, video you made with Tim. Tim Ford, yeah, where yeah. he's like probiotics. Yeah, that yeah. was Jason. Jason was like, you know, I, I wasn't sure if I was gonna get that stuff, but then I saw it had probiotics. So I just ordered it. Probiotics. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what you need. Have you get seen that video before? I did. Yeah. did you know that was you? Yeah, I pretty much figured yeah, it. I'm like, it hey, that guy's me. <laughs> he's got it's all good. in his mustache when he gobbles it down. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. exactly. I was on the site looking. I'm like, I want to look at this milk. I'm like, man. So first of all, it said keto compliant on there. I'm like, oh, good to go. Because a lot of the protein stuff is loaded with sugar. Sure. Oh, yeah. And then I saw probiotics. I'm like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> here's, I, the, I here's, the, here's the issue. It's either loaded with sugar or it tastes horrible. Because even you put whatever uh, sweetener, artificial sweeteners taste horrible except for one, the one that we use, which is not yeah. artificial. It's actually from nature itself. Yeah, that monk, nature. monk fruit. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, you can get all those from originmain.com. And and I I also realize that you haven't tried the Warrior Kids strawberry milk yet. I and I'm, I'm going to get that to you. Awesome. And you're going to get nuts, bro. <laughs> it is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. So get some of that. Check. Yep, it's true. Also, Jocko has a store, as we all know by now. It's called Jocko Store. So you go to JockoStore.com. This is where you can get your shirts, more rash guards, trucker hats, flex fit hats. We're doing both. Despite have we, do we know which one sells more? They're even. Really? Or are you just making that they up? They were even when I checked. When did you check? No, this no, is no. like a such a ago. scam. What are no, you telling no, no, me no, no. A few months ago, so it was untruthful. No, no, Nothing no, he just said to me made any sense whatsoever. Dude, I got kids, bro. I was a bit around, man. You can't look at me and say it's equal. That's so. Just don't lie to me, dude. It doesn't work. I, I'm like, smell it. How about this? I'll, I'll check it. We'll get That's back cool. to you. Yeah, you and, can do that. And we'll then do see, we're good. Now we're good. Now there's no factor. I'm good. Here's the thing. They're not trying to look at me and tell me something that you don't know. At the end As of the day, you know at the end of the day, doesn't even matter. Because look, what if I'm like, hey, I like flex fit. Oh, but the trucker had so See, this smart, is now he's trying to deflect. Change subject. Matter. We're not doesn't talking about matter. that. We're I talking about being truthful. I want the We're flex fit. I'm getting truthful. the flex fit. Cool. Flex get what you want. Tell right. me the truth. That's what I'm saying. Right. Well, I'll report back. How about that? Is that cool? Anyway, hoodies, like I said, uh, women's stuff on there. If you want to represent while we, we are on the path, that's where you can get the stuff to represent. You Jocko can store. also get some uh, Jocko White Tea. You can get it from wherever. Yeah, it's because it tastes good and it's awesome for you and it gives you an 8,000 pound deadlift, which is not, you know, light. Not something. Uh, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet. Otherwise, Echo is going to keep telling you to subscribe. Yeah, man, He's going to invade your dreams. And tell you to subscribe. Well, and whoever you people are that haven't subscribed yet, you're crazy. Well, this is yeah. 168 podcasts. This is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of listening, but you didn't click subscribe. We got issues with you. So, don't, so just subscribe. Yeah. Don't forget about the Warrior Kid podcast. Trying to tee up a couple more right now to get them out there to all of you. So get some of that. And then also uh, YouTube. We have a YouTube channel if you want to check that out. It's it's starring Echo's videos. 
It's starring the video version of this podcast. That's right. Well, you and who see made what, that? Well, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, so it's starring yeah. Echo Charles's videos. Yeah, man. Yeah, so that's true. check out that. You see what Jason Gardner looks like. Yes. So that's something. You're gonna, you're gonna definitely gonna want to see what Jason Gardner looks like. Nope. Does you think Jason? Okay. Does and people, please let me know. Does Jason Gardner look how he sounds? I think so. Yeah, I think so. You think so? Well, the thing is, I've I you already saw I me. saw you and didn't hear you. So a lot uh, of people in this sense, yeah, people is going to be the opposite. You. I think you probably. I think you probably. Look how you sound. I think, I think but so. it's hard for me to make that judgment because I know you. That is true. I I kind I I gotta find that picture. I'll post a picture of you and me, age whatever, twenty nineteen. Yeah, and and I we both to look completely the, insane. Yeah. So you guys went in at the same time. No, he went in a few years before. A few me. years before, and then we ran over into each other yeah. overseas and just really hit it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, uh. What else? Psychological warfare. Yes. What that is? <laughs> I, I used to go into this all deep. He'd get mad every single time. That, that's the, this is the one that broke me. This is the one where I was like, "Bro, we're not doing this whole support <laughs> thing anymore. We're done doing it. Yeah. We're done. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not going to listen yeah. to you. It's not happening." But here's the I was going to go Joe Rogan style and just record it afterwards by myself all somewhere. Right. Well, you can just be quiet. No, this is, the proof is going to be in the pudding. Jason Gardner, you know what psychological warfare is? It is. Uh, actually, you know what? It's not because Jason Gardner's in the game, deep in the game. Yeah. So, of the, you know, for him to know what psychological warfare is. Isn't a big stretch. It's not going to be very surprising. Yeah. So, for the, for the people who don't know what it is, this is what it is. <laughs> it's an album with tracks, Jocko tracks. The thing you got to remember about this, this whole segment of us just sitting around and talking <laughs> for the quote unquote supports which it barely is right it's more just like a, a, a just a session of but it was because when we got done with some podcast early on it was like being drugged through like the emotional freaking hell yeah and you get done and you don't want to just go home like you want to just like okay let's you know it's like my my youngest daughter she'll if she sees something scary or whatever, or, you know, she'll say, like, can we watch something funny? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. just, and so that's what this actually is, is, yeah. hey, okay, we're going to talk about people getting killed, people getting blown up, people getting butchered. Real people. Real by people, by the way. And when we get done with that, we're going to lighten it up a little bit so we can carry on. We're not going to forget about it, but... We're going to have a little bit of levity towards the end. That's what this originally was. Somehow yeah. you ended up just saying the same thing over and over again. Well, because I, <laughs> I, I felt topic. like I was getting good at saying it. That's yeah. Right. You see what I'm saying? So, yeah. So, what I did was I did lose sight of some things. Yeah. You know, but we're back. And, you know, I'm going to explain what psychological warfare is for the people who don't know. It's an album with tracks, Jocko tracks, talking about how you can overcome certain moments of weakness on the path. Boom. That's pretty concise, yep. right? Cool. Boom. Good there job. it is. Next. On it. On it.com. Okay. So on it. Good company. This is where I get kettlebells. Home gym. Home gym. 
No home you gym don't have a home yet? gym yet? No, I just moved. Oh, yeah. I'm getting yeah. ready to build it. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. boom. Was, uh, so you don't have one right I now. Just got the rings, but. Oh, rings, boom. Oh. So my. That's, that's, the, that's the original thing that you need to get. Right. That's the first thing you need to get. Yep. I didn't used to think that. I used to think it was a pull up bar, but I changed my mind. Rings, Cause yeah. Because you can do more versatility. Yeah, because rings. Ring are dips. a pull-up bar ring yes they are mm-hmm. and they're and they're also a dip bar and they're also a, a ring push-up bar That's yeah a thing oh yeah <laughs> big time it's a thing i got my rings from on it anyway on it.com you can get kettlebells rings what battle ropes those maces those crazy maces do work out with that man you'll be you'll be in the game big time anyway a lot of good stuff on there go there on it.com slash jocko we got one. some books too um we got some books like Mikey and the Dragons, which you know I think might be the best kids book ever written. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I read this other Do one. That was really oh, good. Oh, way the warrior kid. Yes. Uh, Mikey and the Dragons. Check it out. It is gonna help kids overcome fear, and it's an entertaining story, and it's got awesome drawings in it, and it rhymes. Yeah, I just shipped one out to my buddy on the East Coast. And he's got little ones, mm-hmm. and he hit me up yesterday on text. He goes, you know, bro, I just read that to my kids because you know, three hours ahead of us. They loved it. That book is awesome. Thank yeah. you. I have people that – this is odd, but I have people that – and I, I have people that say, I get a, got a tears in my eyes when I was reading the letter to his son. Yeah. You know, that can be kind of yeah. heavy. Oh, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I made that original short video about it or whatever, yeah, yeah I should. I think I said this. Right. I showed it to my brother and he's like, he's like, man, I'm kind of like tearing up. I don't know why. <laughs> like, what? And we're watching the video, you know, on the yeah. TV. And it's not like it's this super sad thing, but it just it's like, I guess it's like so re- like real, mm-hmm. you know, like these are things you kind of got to deal with. And now you got to take on this courage kind of thing. And it's like, I don't know. It's weird. Two Plus, I kids. Son, yeah. Funny. <laughs> So check out that. Check out the Warrior Kid books, Warrior Way the Warrior Kid and Mikey or and Mark's Mission. Somebody asked me. People sometimes ask questions that center around themselves. They're asking you a question, but so somebody asked me a question. Hmm. It said two words. What is the theme of Way of the Warrior Kid? Oh, in two words. So that, that was the question. So 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 now this person just wanted me to say. Like sum up this book in two words, and this was a mandate. It wasn't like, "Hey, man, could you kind of give me?" A <laughs> it was like two words. Right, right. So I was like, "Cool." You know what I said? Hmm. It's re- it's actually really easy. What is the underlying theme of the Way of the Warrior Kid book series? Hmm. The underlying theme is this: Warrior Kid. There you go. <laughs> I'm like, you know. there you go. It's <laughs> like you want your kids to be warriors. What does that mean? Does that mean you want them to join the military and and go fight? No, it means you want them to be warriors. Yeah. It's a whole thing, which actually gets explained in there. Mm-hmm. So All yeah. out war, man. That's the warrior kid books. Discipline equals freedom. Field manual. You, I've signed a lot of those for your people. Yeah, and I bought like ten of them and <laughs> had you sign them to a bunch of guys and sent them out. They love them. It helps people out. Yeah, and then I've I've had guys. In the last year, lose somebody, like have someone in a family or friend die, and then I'm like, okay, go look at this page, you know, yep. where you describe how to deal with it. Yeah, I actually had to use that page myself, and mm-hmm. hopefully you don't have to use that page, but there's other things that go on in your life 
that can steer you off the path. And there's other pages in that book that will keep you on the path. This one goes Freedom Field Manual. Extreme Ownership. Everything Jason was talking about, what we did at Trade Debt, everything that we tried to teach to the <coughs> SEALs that were going to go overseas, it's in the book Extreme Ownership. It's in the book The Dichotomy of Leadership. They're both in there. You were showing me your notes the other day, Jason, from from when I inbriefed your troop. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, here's your notes. You gave me, sent me a little picture. What do they say? They say cover and move, simple, prioritize and execute, and decentralized command. That was, I don't know, 12 years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Same word 12. coming out. Same yep. word. Hasn't changed. Learn those. Extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership. Echelon Front, that is our leadership consultancy where we solve problems through leadership. And every organization has problems, all kinds of problems, all kinds of problems. And every single one of those problems is a leadership problem. That's what's going to fix it, is fixing leadership. That's what we do. It's me. It's Leif Babin, JP Donnell, Dave Burke, Flynn Cochran, Mike Sorelli, Mike Baima. And does this make you a new guy? You're a new yeah. guy at Echelon Front, bro. Yay. <laughs> and our latest member, I won't call him a new guy, because it really does matter. You went to Bud's before me, right? So that's like a real thing. Like, I'm a new guy. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, Nothing I'd ever say. Yeah. Anyways, our latest, um, Jason Gardner, who you've just listened to for five hours, is also on the team. And if you want help with your organization and your leadership inside your organization, go to echelonfront.com. Also, we have the muster. The muster is a leadership gathering. conference gathering. Magical, gathering. magical. Yeah. It actually, actually, it's just muster. It is a, a muster. That's what it is. Right. We're all going to get together, we'll talk about leadership, get granular and delve into leadership from a lot of different angles. May 23rd and 24th in Chicago, September 19th and 20th in Denver, December 4th and 5th in Sydney, extremeownership.com. I haven't posted about this yet. Just the muster in general? I haven't posted at all. When I post, it's a lot of stuff, it sells. So if you want to go, all I'm saying is if you want to go, register now, go to echelonfront.com. Actually go to extremeownership.com and that's where you can register to come to the muster in one of those locations. We will see you there. EF Online, online interactive leadership training, starting to see the cool feedback from people on that. So EF Online, it is efonline.com. We have leadership training, courses, online, interactive. What else, what other verbs or adjectives to describe? Interactive. Engaging, In very engaging. Uh, what name your adventure? Wait, choose, choose your, your own adventure. adventure. There's there some choose go. your own adventure kind of scenarios that, that you have to unfold. Yeah, and we're updating it and adding different content to it monthly, so it's going to continue to grow and educate both you and us as we all learn to become better leaders. If you want in on that, I went through that obviously mm-hmm. to make the video and. Coincidentally, a few 
like a month, maybe a month and a half before I went through an online training for CPR. Okay. Okay. So the online training for CPR, well, CPR, you got to do the physical thing too, you know, for the certification, whatever, but there's an online training part of it. So, you know, and not too bad. Not too bad, the online thing. You know, I, I really went through it, kind of committed myself to it, not as long or whatever, but, you know, kind of. So I went through it, and I was like, cool, good. But there were tangible things that I'd be like, mm, you know, you could have done this a little bit more different to actual, actually get the training, quote unquote, training that someone, you know, might need, whatever. So, you know, a few months later, I do, I go through the EF online. And I'm thinking to myself, when I think back on the CPR, this is what they should have did with the CPR <laughs> thing. Granted, the CPR one, I, you could tell was a lot older. It wasn't yeah. quite as contemporary, so I'm not really blaming them. But that's the way I really saw it. I was like, okay, this is good. This will give you like the training training. Yeah. You know, it'll, it'll allow you to make mistakes on yep. an online training or do the wrong thing and then get corrected and say, hey, you did this. You know, kind of. Yep. Well, that's one of the things that worried me. But. Because you remember the Navy, like Navy course you'd take on something that was online? Yep. And it would be horrible and boring and everyone would just copy each other and just click through the things mm-hmm. to get it done and you don't take anything away from it. That was my fear. How does this, if we if we don't do this right, but then as soon as I started looking at the technology and the things you could do and the way you could make it engaging, it's, it's I don't want to say it's better, but if you're sitting in a, if you're sitting at the muster and I say something, and you're like, wow, and you go to write that down, and then you hear me say this tail end of something else, and you missed it. You can't press rewind. Right, you can't right. rewatch it. Yeah. You can't press pause and be like, that was a really good point. I know how I can apply that to my world and just write down how to handle something. You can't mm-hmm. do that at the muster. Yeah. On online, oh, let me rewatch that. Oh, okay. oh, Jocko and Leif just did a role play on dealing with a, a Someone in the office. I actually need to deal with a person like that. How should I? How should I? I'm gonna watch that again. I'm gonna see those little maneuvers take place. So that's what we did, and we realized that we just don't have the reach for the demand that's out there for Echelon Front. We appreciate the demand, and we want to satisfy the demand. So that is efonline.com. If you want to get fully engaged in our leadership training, that's it. And of course, we have EF Overwatch where we're taking all these experienced leaders that have been in combat for the last couple decades, and as they move into the civilian sector, placing them into jobs where they can help lead organizations using the experience they have and their understanding of the principles that we talk about at Echelon Front in the book Extreme Ownership and on this podcast. Go to efoverwatch.com where they're standing by waiting for you. By the way, and if you got done or get done listening to this three hours of conversation and you want to continue it further, it wasn't enough and you're not sure what to do, well, then that's cool because you can actually get in touch with us and have little little mini micro conversations with us (laughs) on the interwebs, on Twitter. On Instagram and on Dash Fish and Walkie Boy. Echo is at Echo Charles. I am at at Jocko Willink. And Jason has multiple handles. Go. Jason N. Gardner on Twitter. Twitter. Jason.n.gardner on Instagram and Jason N. Gardner on Facebook. 
you're gonna have fun with Twitter. I'm just gonna let you know. Cool. Because Twitter is the place for somebody with little one-liners uh. to hang out <laughs> and participate <laughs> and throw one-liners out into the world and make people laugh or make people think. And it's just, it's it's pretty fun. It's, remember, you ever feel like the Terminator robot? You ever feel like that? No. I do sometimes. And one of the ways that I feel that is when I'm having a conversation with someone and I see little one-liners uh, of what I could say. <laughs> and sometimes, I mean, if I'm answering questions for a client, I'll be like, okay, here's, uh, like as soon as they're asking me, I'm seeing little possible answers of how they fit in their world and does it make sense to them and I've, I've got all those and then I just kind of choose one and go. And when I'm having, but I remember that in like when I was a school child, I was a little kid going to school, especially like around, what grade is fifth, sixth and seventh grade? How old are you? Not. No. Fourth is 11, nine, ele- like 10. 11, 12, 13, right? Yes, yes, indeed. It was like every single comment or statement that a school teacher made was just a prime setup to knock it out of the park with a one liner from the back row. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You just, I would just be sitting there going, oh, I, 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 I would, want, I would be so tempted. I have to bite my tongue all day long as much as I could because when you're. 12 years old, yeah. you can only hold it in for so long before it just comes out. And then, so anyways, you're gonna like Twitter because you can use your little uh, one-liners, which you are very, very good at. And they're always, like I said, they're always very educational or humorous, or they at least make you think. So you'll have fun with that. Yeah. And don't feed the trolls, and don't feed the Russian bots. No. That's my new thing. Be careful. Don't click on anything. Yeah, don't click on anything. Check. All right. Echo, anything else? No. Awesome. Jason. Yeah. I'd like to thank my parents, Jim and Cookie Gardner, for all your unconditional love and support over the years. My sister, Ari, who's a blue belt in jiu-jitsu. How'd you get into jiu-jitsu? What? How'd you get into jiu-jitsu? Listening to the podcast. (laughs) Listening to the podcast, immediately found a jiu-jitsu place up there in San Clemente and started training. And then um, my brother Thaddeus, who's a tattoo artist, tattoos up in San Clemente at San Clemente Tattoo. If you're going to get some ink, go see him if you're local. And thanks to everybody else and thanks to all the frogmen out there, past, present, and future. Get some. Hell yeah. And... We always thank everyone in uniform that protects us at home and abroad from the evil that we talked about today. And that includes, obviously, our military personnel, police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, correctional officers, border patrol, all the first responders. And also thanks to all of those that did serve and that have done their part as veterans for our great nation like my brother here master chief jason gardner thanks for your service thanks for coming on and of course i'm looking forward to another bunch of good years together thanks for everything bro and to everyone else that's listening I'll go back to Beowulf.
for every one of us living in this world means waiting for an end. Let whoever can win glory before death. So endure your troubles today. Bear up and be the man I expect you to be. That's how our ancestors lived and that's how they died. So let us do the same. Arise, set forth, and get after it. And until next time, this is Jason Gardner and Echo and Jocko.